it makes perfect sense though because i mean magic operates on symbols and imbuing these symbols with power you know a lot of the occult path i think for many people is about accruing power and the ability to affect change and some people maybe literally get possessed by that desire you know and become vehicles to uh, push um, certain ideologies and, and mind forms through. I find it a really kind of compelling idea that we're all living in this post Third Reich enchanted world where like somehow they've put a spell over the world that we end up having all this synchromistic bullshit and we're slowly like playing into some sort of long long term plan of theirs like it's kind of a, an amazing idea for, for a movie or something you know? I know right I mean that, that's the thing it's like it just sounds so far fetched when you get into the par free stuff though and the influence that Adam Parfrey had in the night because that's where I've kind of traced this too is like to the 19 to the 1970s but then also like Adam Parfrey is sort of like the powder keg and he's publishing all these books you know right right yeah At the beginning of the 20th century, roads in America were existent, but not laid out in any definable system. While the U.S. had almost 2 million miles of roads outside urban areas, these were all local roads built to connect communities and towns, and only about 100 were paved roads. The others were mud and gravel and subject to being washed out by rain and snow. During the First World War, horses had proven too easily destroyed and killed by modern firepower. And so the U.S. Army undertook a test to determine if motorized military vehicles were capable of transporting men and equipment effectively across various terrain. This experiment would also highlight the terrible condition of roads in the U.S. and that it was of strategic importance to demonstrate the necessity for the judicious expenditure of federal government appropriations in providing for the necessary highways for the defense of the country. From this experiment was born the first transcontinental motor convoy of 1919 with the mission of crossing the country on the newly created Lincoln Highway that ran coast to coast from Times Square in New York City west to Lincoln Park in San Francisco. The convoy consisted of around 285 officers and enlisted men under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Charles W. McClure. The journey along the Lincoln Highway was not easy for the convoy. Torrential downpours, snow, and sandstorms all rose up in their path. But despite the condition of the road and the weather, only three vehicles were lost along the 3,200-mile journey. 
convoy arrived in San Francisco on September the 6th, only two days behind schedule. A full military report was filed regarding the expedition and noted the necessity for a comprehensive system of national highways, including transcontinental or through routes east and west, north and south, is real and urgent as a commercial asset to further colonize and develop the sparsely settled sections of the country. And finally, as a defensive military necessity. Despite the report and the success of the expedition, the U.S. government was slow to actually implement the highway system. There was an army captain by the name of Dwight D. Eisenhower who volunteered for the expedition that never forgot his journey, in his words, through darkest America. 35 years later, he remembered that experience and was determined to create the interstate highway system despite Congress's initial reluctance. His success in connecting America through the interstate highway system led to an explosion in economic and cultural growth in America, though at the price of the destruction of the urban landscape in some cities and communities. It is often said that there are no straight roads in America, and in the creation of the interstate highway system, numerous communities of minorities and lower-class citizens were destroyed to preserve and bolster affluent middle and upper-class white areas, further widening the divide between the haves and have-nots. I thought Ike's view of his voyage across our nation in 1919 through darkest America was an appropriate metaphor for surfacing from the depths of the subterranean narrative into an America in the midst of the long night. The whole world darkened by the insanity of sickness and war social upheaval and political chaos. The hate and racism that we thought our ideas and technology could help us exercise are still here, and they seem to be getting stronger. The more that we find ourselves connected, the more roads that we build between each other, the more this hate and racism seems to grow. And that makes for fertile ground in which to plant the seeds of fascism. But political and social turmoil isn't anything new in America. Though more conservative historians and pundits nowadays seem to be intent on revising our historical narrative and glossing over the uglier parts. And the fractures that we're seeing now began a century ago. The end of the First World War created a lot of ghosts and left many nations haunted by the destruction of the classical ordered world or at least what they perceived as the world as it should be. Modernity effectively exercised the spirit of the old world and installed a new version of reality. We could no longer revert to the older operating system. And with the new technologies that were emerging, the new discoveries, the advances in knowledge and the evolution of human beings, it was inevitable that some of the old world beliefs of blood and soil would seep back in. This became ever apparent in the ill-guided attempts by many groups to harness the power of eugenics and purify the blood in the 1920s and 1930s. And when one thinks of eugenics, you don't necessarily associate it with Kentucky. But one of the most influential individuals in the history of eugenics 
and who was responsible for a number of advancements associated with eugenics, has strong ties to Kentucky and brought eugenics from Nazi Germany back to the bluegrass state. Wycliffe Preston Draper was the son of George A. Draper, a wealthy textile machinery manufacturer. Upon his father's death in 1923, Wycliffe inherited the family fortune. His mother's family, the Wycliffes and the Prestons, were also said to have been the largest slave owners in Kentucky before the Civil War. Wycliffe enlisted in the British Army shortly after the outbreak of World War I and transferred to the U.S. Army when the United States entered the conflict. After the war, he lived in New York City until moving to England, where he studied archaeology and anthropology at the University of London. Draper provided the funding for the expedition that discovered Asilar Man, the oldest known skeleton ever found in Africa. Around this time, Draper became interested in eugenics and used his vast fortune to make significant donations to the American Eugenics Society. Draper even traveled to Germany in August 1935 to attend the International Congress for the Scientific Investigation of Population Problems, hosted by Nazi Germany and chaired by Wilhelm Frick, the German Minister of the Interior. Draper was also the mastermind of the Pioneer Fund, founding it in 1937 to advance the scientific study of heredity and human differences. Harry H. Laughlin, the eugenicist that Draper tapped to head the Pioneer Fund, was an advocate for restrictive immigration laws and national programs of compulsory sterilization of the mentally ill and mentally handicapped. He was also the director of the Eugenics Record Office, or the ERO, and was among the most active individuals in influencing American eugenics policy, especially compulsory sterilization legislation. The ERO was a research institute that gathered biological and social information about the American population, serving as a center for eugenics and human heredity research from 1910 to 1939. It was established by the Carnegie Institution of Washington Station for Experimental Evolution and subsequently administered by its Department of Genetics. Both its founder, Charles Benedict Davenport, and its director, Harry H. Laughlin, were major contributors to the field of eugenics in the United States. Its mission was to collect substantial information on the ancestry of the human population to produce propaganda that was made to fuel the eugenics movement and to promote the idea of race betterment. Draper was a racist against Jews and African Americans and was outraged by the Supreme Court's 1954 decision, Brown v. Board of Education. He even went so far as to secretly send $255,000 to the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission to support racial segregation and anti-civil rights violence and intimidation. Draper also donated considerable funds to right-wing political organizations, such as the World Anti-Communist League, also known as the WACL. The WACL was established in 1966 by the intelligence organizations of Taiwan and South Korea to provide anti-communist propaganda. Fascists played an important role in the WACL. At least three European chapters of the organization were controlled by former SS officers from Nazi Germany. And to add an even crazier twist to Draper's story, writer and researcher John Bevilacqua 
has argued that Draper might have been involved with James Angleton, Charles Willoughby, Gerald L. K. Smith, Ray S. Klein, Robert J. Morris, and Anastasi Boniaski in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. One also can't help but wonder if there are any connections between Wycliffe Draper and Alexander Guterma. Wycliffe also has another connection to the Penny Royal and Kentucky. He, along with his Aunt Helen, created the Jesse Preston Draper Memorial Fund that was dedicated to charitable purposes and the education of white students from the state of Kentucky. Draper oversaw this philanthropic fund and ultimately used it to build a large college classroom building that was subsequently named the Draper Building at Berea College. Wycliffe's Aunt Helen had been interested in rural Kentucky causes for some time and had frequently supported Kentucky Frontier Nursing. Draper stipulated that the funds were designated to be used for the education of Kentucky mountain boys and girls of Northern European descent, the Anglo-Saxons of Kentucky. In order for Berea College to access the funds, they were forced to endorse Draper's eugenic and racist goals. So the, the Draper family fun, funded uh, some research. They funded most of the eugenics research, I would say, in the 20th century. And that changed from being sort of the sterilization of inferior people by their, by their uh, perspective or anything related to genetic superiority and selective breeding. So they, they funded some journals that, that put this research out and it kind of went from the harder edge stuff to when it was less politically correct to the more nuanced things involving a lot of the research that ended up forming ideas about the bell curve and intelligence and uh, how we how we scored intelligence and it ended up even funding the sort of uh, crazier stuff at the end through um, the Raelian things were partially funded through that. So that would be human cloning, you know, which is in itself sort of a, a different take on eugenics, I guess. So why is Wycliffe Draper important to the Penny Royal mystery? Beyond the weird eugenics programs he was promoting in Kentucky, finding Draper was the first time we encountered fascists and Nazis in our investigation. Before we really lost ourselves down the Penny Royal rabbit hole, when we had only heard the stories of a local cult and after we had interviewed Pamela and heard her descriptions of the magical rituals she witnessed as a child. We started doing research on magical rituals that involved children. I'd never personally heard of anything like what Pamela was describing, and it was hard to believe that any organized group here in Somerset was performing such rituals. Again, there's no evidence of any actual cult and we've previously explained that the entire story of a local cult is a complex mixture of different stories and local folklore. But it still led us to research cults and magic, which then led us to Julius Evola, architect of modern fascism and a significant influence in the rise of Nazism. One of the things we realized as we were kind of looking into these uh, seemingly realistic rumors about a sex cult in Somerset 
we realized that that a lot of what we thought about the occult in terms of especially when you think of like the satanic panic and things like that it's a very specific idea of what esoteric and the occult is and we realized that that was a much more complex scene than we were thinking there's a lot of people involved in it and a lot of them aren't too crazy so we were trying to figure out what kind of cult could there be in kentucky i think that's why we were googling um we started Googling sex cults and Kentucky, and we ended up coming across an article on VISIP called A Vast Right-Wing Conspiracy. And the Kentucky connection there was through uh, Wycliffe Draper, who's part of the Draper family. They were a family mostly uh, in New England that had roots and, or ties to Kentucky that was funding a lot of eugenics projects. They were funding a lot of pre-World War II things in Nazi Germany, and they were also tied in with funding some some parts of MK Ultra. And so we come across this article and it mentions it mentions the the Draper family. It also mention, mentions Henry Fisher from the documents, which is really one of the most shocking things about it. And it mentions Julius Evola, who was, for people that don't know, he is uh, some somewhat known in alt-right circles, sort of inspiring neo-Nazi ideas, uh, was an Italian magician or Italian occultist uh, who did a lot of the original or some of the foundational works on sex magic. I think the book is called The Metaphysics of Sex. In that book, he kind of outlines his theory of how that works in in the context in which he viewed it. Julius Avella is is really interesting in in the way that article kind of connects him to the post World War II fascism stuff. He's he is often seen as someone who could have been sort of a ringleader of the Nazi di- diaspora, if you want to call it that. So there were people who had formed routes to South America and to other countries as well and the that is where a lot of these people ended up fleeing and he is associated with a lot of the names of some of those people who fled to Argentina and Brazil that yeah one of the the th- the reasons we came across Evola and as we looked into him more after this it was in association with rituals involving children because that is something that seemed to be uh, unique in a lot of these these stories. Looking for magical rituals that involve children led us to Evola's The Metaphysics of Sex and other writings wherein he described magical rituals fueled by the destruction of innocence and children. And when we looked for a connection between Evola and Kentucky, we discovered an article written by Stephen Snyder, a.k.a. Recluse, our friend and parapolitical researcher, who you frequently heard in this season and in season one. His four-part article, A Vast Right-Wing Conspiracy, The Secret Origin of the Patriot Movement, explained his research into the rise of fascism and the far right in American political history up through the current day. The article laid out the strange connections between the backers of Willis Cardo's Liberty Lobby, including figures such as Roger Pearson, Francis Parker Yockey, and Francois Genaud all of whom have had ties to the post-World War II European fascist underground. In that article, Stephen puts forth his argument that Willis Cardo was affiliated with what researcher Kevin Coogan referred to as the Black Order, a network established by the SS before the end of World War II in which occultist Julius Evola played a major role in. Stephen also highlights the fact that Evola was a member of the SD, the intelligence arm of the Nazi SS. 
According to Stephen, the Evola Network established ties with powerful figures in the U.S. intelligence community, such as Alan Dulles and James Jesus Angleton. Roger Pearson, a longtime associate of Willis Cardo's, would go on to collaborate with men such as Angleton and Ray S. Klein when he later became involved with the American Security Council and the World Anti-Communist League, both organizations with strong ties to international fascism. Another major financial backer of Cardo and the Liberty Lobby was none other than Colonel Wycliffe Preston Draper. Draper seems to have become affiliated with Cardo through an organization known as the International Association for the Advancement of Ethnology and Eugenics. Towards the end of the war, Evola appears to have been working with some branch of the SD, uh, which was the intelligence service of the SS. Um, I think it was like either the 4th or 5th Division. Uh, the SD had acquired quite a few different opponents uh, towards the end of the war, like uh, the dreaded Gestapo and so forth. But Evola ended up working in a really arcane research branch that spent a good chunk of the time essentially researching more occult-oriented uh, stuff in uh, Austria towards the end of the war on Salzburg. It's you know, really interesting, obviously, because, I mean, virtually the entire Nazi state at this point in time had been harnessed towards defending the motherland uh, with the oncoming onslaught from the Allies. Afoli apparently uh, was just spending all this time on the war preparations were going on researching the uh, mythological origins of Freemasonry or something like that, so it was, you know, quite peculiar. Uh, some of the speculation around this, uh, specifically from Kevin Coogan was that he was trying to come up with a new kind of pan-European version of Nazism. I mean, of course, obviously, um, much of the mythos that the SS had embraced up to that point had been much more German-centric, and they needed something that was more pan-European. That had been kind of the direction that they, um, especially the SS, had been heading in towards the waning years of the war it became more and more evident that they were um, going to need more help from the other nationalities of Europe other than just the Nordic races. It seems like some of these uh, concepts were later embraced into, or incorporated rather, into the the post-war kind of fascist underground, if you will, the Black Order, the fascist international, whatever you necessarily want to call it. Uh, Evoli seems like he was figure within this. I mean, again, to how much prevalence he had, we probably will never know, but he does seem to have had a pretty considerate ideological influence on a lot of the components of this order. Obviously, a lot has been written about his involvement with the neo-fascists in um, Italy, obviously during the years of lead and all that good stuff. But I mean, you could also look at... uh, you know, like the Vienna Circle around uh, Wilhelm Landig, if you will, which had, come, which had really promoted a lot of the Black Sun tropes and, the, you know, the Nazi last battalion at Antarctica and then later the UFO tropes that were incorporated into so much of these mythos and so forth. And Landig, you know, was another SD officer. He was in a different division as of all life, but he was also based out of Salzburg uh, to war in Austria and Certainly, he seems to have taken a lot of Evola's concepts and brought them into his own Black Order, Black Sun mythos. I mean, certainly a much more watered-down version of it, but I do sense that there was a strong 
presence for the Voli there in that sense. I mean, that's just kind of one instance of that. Uh, H. Keith Thompson, who was I kind of involved in the whole network with Cardo, um, later acknowledged being an asset of the SD and controlling one of the expense accounts that had been set up. He alleged that I think there was about $2 million or something like that in it. With Evola, um, you know, it seems like uh, Cardo had probably encountered some of his ideals via Francis Parker Yaki. There's never a question that Yaki and Evola and was somewhat favorably disposed to many of his concepts because they were both sort of the traditionalist camp of the blessed ideology that grew up in fascist circles or quasi-fascist circles, rather, both before and after the Second World War, but uh, became especially prevalent after the Second World War when uh, the far right was kind of analyzing the failings of Nazism and fascism. So Yaki was kind of surfing those same currents, and uh, Cardo, of course, became Yaki's uh, biggest proponent within uh, the American fascist movement after Yaki's uh, suicide. But Yaki, again, you know, he also appears to have been some kind of agent for this fascist network. I mean, of course, his suicide was... Uh, extremely notable by uh, occurring via cyanide capsule after he had been apprehended by U.S. authorities after one of his many travels overseas. He had become something of an international man of mystery, bouncing back and forth around the Middle East and Europe, uh, agent, if you will, for this you know, network. Uh, in terms of Wycliffe Prescott, uh, or Preston Draper, uh, his links with this network appear to have been somewhat more informal. Mainly, it seems like through the International Association for the Advancement of Ethnology and Eugenics, the good old IAAEE. God, because these guys always need these, um, these titles that are tongue twisters to make this stuff sound more prestigious than it really is. Just sort of gross and fanatical racism. <laughs> But yeah, this was another outfit that Draper uh, appears to have been funding uh, by the 50s, 60s. You know, he had a rather considerable amount of money by that point in time. I think this was after he had sold uh, textile mannering to a manufacturing plant that his family had built up to uh, Rockwell, the arms manufacturer. And uh, yeah, you know, I mean, he was lavishing it around on uh, all kinds of stuff. Cardo, you know, in the Liberty Lobby had just gotten going around 1958, and uh, he was already cozying up to some of these uh, anti-Semitic circles, and, well, it probably made a certain degree of sense. Uh, Eighth Keith Thompson, the guy I just kind of previously mentioned, who uh, was tasked with managing some of these uh, Nazi funds, was also a member of the IAAEE. Draper was certainly known to be a fanatical of eugenics and that type of thing and lavished all kinds of funding on a horde of far-right and racist uh, groups in the uh, Cold War era, I mean, especially at this time in the 50s and 60s. So, I mean, he would certainly care to be the kind of guy that this, you know, sort of underground fascist network would look to, uh, i.e. a uh, racist, eccentric millionaire with too much time and too much money on his hands, uh, which... Preston Draper certainly fit the bill for in that regard. So, yeah, the colonel was offering money to Cardo and this clique uh, that in turn was in contact with uh, their, I suppose, more quote-unquote sophisticated because they were European after all counterparts in uh, the motherlands. 
So, this was that whole incestuous network that I began uh, chronicling all those years ago, and uh, which just keeps getting weirder and weirder as time goes on. The Liberty Lobby and Willis Carto, who published William Grimstad's book Anti-Zion, and who Michael Hoffman worked with at the Institute for Historical Review, were effectively bankrolled by prominent members of the European fascist underground, former SS Nazi officers, and U.S. military intelligence, as well as Wycliffe Preston Draper. When we began investigating the Penny Royal mystery, I never expected to run into Nazis or such a significant undercurrent of fascism. Popular media has normalized Nazism into a trope. They're great villains for Marvel movies and sci-fi flicks where they've emerged from the hollow earth to take over the moon. That they have connections to Kentucky and continually re-emerge in our research seems significant only because we, like everyone else, had our heads in the sand. Nazism and fascism keeps popping up in our investigation because they are an ever-present part of the American landscape. And part of this investigation has been about understanding why that's the case. And it led us to a doctrine I didn't realize I was already familiar with, a doctrine called traditionalism. According to traditionalist doctrine, also known as the perennial doctrine, there are universal metaphysical truths which exist a priori, These are the primordial elements of reality. All major orthodox world religions are founded on these truths. And orthodoxy here is important for the traditionalist. Non-orthodox and non-secular beliefs and philosophies, with their origins in the Enlightenment, have led to the loss of truth. Modernism, too, has contributed to the loss of access to these universal truths. As these universal truths existed before the Enlightenment, there's a longing for the past and a desire to return. Traditionalists are therefore anti-modern and anti-progressive, fighting against our science-driven technological future. French philosopher René Guénon is often considered the originator of the formal traditionalist doctrine and is notable for his belief that modernity is an anomaly in the history of mankind. The universal truths that have been lost because of modernity are responsible for the manifestation of the world the version of the world that is real. Guinan believed that we are further and further removed from the manifestation of the real by our continual denial of the metaphysical realm. And even though René Guinan embraced metaphysics, he denounced the metaphysical doctrines of theosophy and neo-occultism in the form of spiritualism. Julius Avola, as we mentioned earlier, was an Italian magician and political philosopher and, most importantly, a traditionalist who was heavily influenced by the theories of Guinan. During the years of lead in Italy, Evola's teachings were popular among Italian fascists. As Valentina Pisanti, a semiologist at the University of Bergamo, explains, as an occultist, Evola was convinced that the world contained some mysterious truths that only the initiated could see, and one of those hidden truths was a Jewish conspiracy to rule the world. Evola believed in the power of magic and tried to use it to restore the world to a traditional Roman pagan religion. 
Another defining feature of Evola that sets him apart from other racist writers is the fact that he openly denounces Christianity. In his 1928 essay, Imperialissimo Pagano, Evola describes Christianity as a Semitic superstition and as one of the main sources of the decadence of the West. He was opposed to Christianity because he viewed it as not native to Europe, but rather an Asiatic movement born to a Jew. Evola also believed that the very message of Christianity was incompatible with the aggressiveness of fascism. In his own words, quote, which kind of state, not to mention empire, can we build on a gospel preaching obedience, the preeminence of the humble, the abject, and the miserable? Speaking of uh, talking of uh, Jewish Hevola is is complicated because he he is a very he was was a very complicated and multifaceted character. A little bit of like a little bit of uh, biography, I guess. First of all, uh, he was born Giulio Cesare Evola. Julius was um, something that you know he, he he called himself like that just to go to harken back to this this Roman uh, and I mean you know a Roman Empire background that he, he features so heavily in his philosophy. I mean, he was born in, what's that, I think, uh, in uh, 18, 1898, so at the turn of the of the century, really. And so he really was living, I would say, in a, in a liminal time, to use a term, to use a, like a, a term that we like a lot, because he was really, really living in a moment whereby you know, the old world, the world of the empires was falling apart through, you know, World War One and eventually World War Two, and this new world was coming in. I guess that from the very beginning, there was this huge dichotomy in, in his life of this idealistic ancient world where things were pure and right and everything was ordered and was clear and this new modernity that was coming in and was changing everything was changing all the well the perceived uh, equilibrium of the word. Something that it's interesting about Evola is that he uh, definitely became one of the most important uh, thinkers and philosophers of fascism. But at the very beginning of his career, well, when he was when he was a young man, he was he was actually very critical of fascism. It was only later, like I think in 1938, right before the World War II started, that he eventually got to meet Mussolini. And as Mussolini was changing his his policies, because you got to remember that the fascism fascism started as a believe it or not a left wing populist movement, right? It was it was very much like uh, almost like a a socialist kind of movement at the beginning. It was, and we're talking about in the, in, in the 20s, it was only almost 20 years later, right, at the very beginning of the uh, World War II, after Mussolini was, in, was on, already in power for many years, that things started to change. I guess Mussolini felt the lure uh, that eventually proved fatal of uh, Nazism and, of course, Adolf Hitler. And that's when he started getting, you know, uh, getting in the, the, the eugenic uh, laws in Italy. And that really turned fascism into the far-right movement that we all know today. That's when Evola bought into it. <laughs> at, that, at this point, uh, he was already 
really a student and a practitioner of what's called, well, what we call it today, traditionalism of perennialism. And this idea that there is one, one true perennial tradition that stands back from a mythical past, you know, this, this golden age, uh, where again, where everything was was correct and everything was right and everything was well ordered, and as the stages of life and and by life I mean like the life of the cosmos uh, go into you know into puberty and then you know adulthood and then middle age and then and, you know becoming old and things start to collapse. And one key point of, of traditionalism is that we live in the Kali Yuga. Kali is obviously the goddess, uh, the goddess Kali, the goddess, the, let's say, Kali is a complex, complex figure, but you can call it, you can think of it as the goddess of destruction, of decay, and Yuga means time. I'm simplifying things, obviously. <laughs> you can think of Kali as Kala, and Kala means time as well. So the idea that, you know, things uh, decay as time goes on, right? And so for, for traditionalism, we live in Kali Yuga. And so basically it's it's as bad as it gets, right? And this is the moment where where everything is falling apart. And, and Ebola was, was really buying into this idea was really thinking that you know, you, you, I could say you could you could see in the world around him that things were changing so fast and decaying so fast that clearly this was was the Kali Yuga. One important thing about about him is that of course he was a full-blown magician. Uh, it was I guess he really got into into occultism and esotericism around the 1920, so when he was already like in his early 20s, right? And that's when he was into, really got into spiritual and transcendental and super rational studies. He was definitely one of the earliest people to become interested in uh, uh, well, I would say in Tantra, especially in Tibetan Tantra, which is, let's say, it's the more magical, uh, at least from from our um, from our perspective. He was definitely, like I said, a, he, he was a practicing magician, and he was a big part of the Ur group. This was pretty much a, a a cabal, a coterie of, of, of magicians. Every, all of them were coming from this traditional perennialist background. They were, you know, they were, they would, they were doing magic together, right? It was always about, I guess that, I say their focus was really, I mean, what we would call theurgy today in this day and age. I mean, not so much so the, you know, the the magic of results, uh, but it's a, more about like a, a sort of like internal and theurgical alchemy to change the nature of man from lead into gold. This is actually, you know, you, this is what you find in Telema as well. Telema pretty much is not so much about a, a, like a magical practice that will get you a better job, <laughs> but it's more about, you know, finding your true will and so getting to do what you really are supposed to do. In Ebola, it's not so much about there's there's not so much like you know they're the bad people really, which is something that actually a lot of his followers nowadays would would infer. It's more that you know they tend to be uh, Ebola tend to see these uh, adepts of the left hand path um, to use you know dark, violent sexual powers against the modern world, and I would say that for Ebola, these viral heroes are were both generous and cruel and possess the ability to rule and to commit Dionysian uh, acts 
that might have seen as conventionally immoral. One, one other thing that is important to, to make clear here is that Evra was one of the worst racists out there. I mean, that was his shtick, right? <laughs> when Evra um, um, did not uh, join fascis fascism at first because it, there were no eugenic uh, eugenics in it at first. There was no um, no racism in it. Evra was a complete anti-Semite. He was one of the of the people that actually gave more credence to the forgery of the Priory of Sion. You know, the idea that, you know, I mean, he, he was, he, he really believed that it existed. And when later in life, you know, more and more evidence came out to, to, to show that in fact it was a forgery, um, he insisted that, well, you know, it could be a forgery, but it's a forgery that works. So, <laughs> so that's, that's the kind of, the kind of man he was. There are two books that are that really, um, I would say, uh, inspired a lot of like neo-fascism in occultism today. One, and possibly the most famous, is Revolt Against the, the Modern World. And the second one is Metaphysics of Sex. Now, Revolt Against the Modern World is pretty much everything we discussed so far. This idea that, you know, we live in, in yugas that get from you know from the golden age to the age of, of, of iron uh from from you know the the, the age of perfection into the kali yuga and uh, you know everything that's modern it's bad and you will see that this is precisely what is being parroted by neo-fascists and neo-nazis in a culture today think think of alexander dugin dugin and you know the, the idea of holy russia and imperialism the idea of you know going back to this ordered world like somewhere where you know everybody knows where they belong and everybody is a perfect cog in the machine and everything works as god intended right so that's definitely i mean that's revolt against the mother war that's why Ebola is so important It's this just idea of like romantic nationalism is the term that I was sort of looking for. <laughs> oh. Yeah, romantic ideals of this like traditionalized past that no longer exist and sort of their response was that with our power we can sort of reanimate these things and, and keep hold of them and you know, and I think too if you think of like the alt-right sort of movement today and how they're so concerned with tradition and you know, the site, it's just so strange. <laughs> yeah, that's very much, yeah, very much part of it, too. So just a return to, like, again, a rejection of modernity, of industrialization or of urbanization, right? So all the things that sort of are attached with those notions. And again, just like, this is what our homes look like. This is what our families look like. Here are our foodways, our stories that we tell, the music that we listen to. All of those things are inherently tied up with, you know, that traditional expression. The term folklore itself was coined in 1846 um, by an Englishman named William Toms, who was an antiquarian. Um, but before that, the Germanic term for it, right? So you're thinking of like the Brothers Grimm and the early 1800s um, was actually Volkskund. And so when we think of that term, um, its sort of English equivalent is anthropology. And so when in the 30s and into the 40s, when the Nazi regime was taking over, what they did was pretty horrific in this idea that they claimed that they had like complete ownership 
and cultural like ties to the physical landscape itself that they were part of it their stories their folklore only existed because of these like of their specific group if that makes sense so those ties ran so deep that any sort of outsider was a threat to that and obviously we know that that was used to commit atrocious sort of acts against humanity so much so that um, after the Second World War, folklorists stopped using that term Volkskund because it had too much baggage that was connected to the Third Reich and instead transformed or sort of transitioned into Volkerkund, which is ethnography. So you won't find any people in Europe who go by the term folklorists. They go by ethnographers. So, yeah, I mean, it's just this really damaging idea that they had complete ownership and deep ties to the land and that everything culture-wise that sprung forth was sort of their God-given right to that. One of the most important targets of fascists, especially those espousing a traditionalist viewpoint, is folklore. They target the local, regional, and national folklore and begin revising it. They start saying things like, Don't you remember when things were simpler before now? Don't you remember when everything was perfect and right? They start associating the folklore with a past that never existed, but one where any minority, ethnic, or political group that they disagree with or hate are part of the reason why our traditional and orthodox and perfect past no longer exists. And this is a powerful and dangerous argument, especially in times of quickly changing societal norms because of advancements in technology and culture. These fascist traditionalists reject science, reject change, and reject the future violently. In the 1970s and 1980s, something was happening in the underground fringe communities on the West Coast. Figures like Boyd Rice, Michael Moynihan, and Anton LaVey were becoming active and extremely influential in the art and music scenes, and their controversial work and writings were given an even wider audience by a man named Adam Parfrey. Parfrey was born on April the 12th, 1957 in Manhattan, His mother, Rose, was a theater director who taught at the New School, and his father became a character actor, eventually playing Maximus, an orangutan judge, in the original 1968 Planet of the Apes. Parfrey's first major publishing venture was Amok Publishing, and one of his most controversial moves was the publication of the first English translation of Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels' only novel, Michael. Parfrey also published the writings of the Unabomber, Charles Manson, and books on taboo subjects like cannibalism, Satanism, and necrophilia. Salon wrote of Parfrey in an article in 2000. Think of Parfrey as equal parts P.T. Barnum, Rod Serling, and Hegel. The man can't be beat when it comes to collecting outright oddities. 
Harfrey founded his publishing company, Feral House, in 1986 after returning to California, and the company's first book was The Satanic Witch by Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan. As more people adopted the internet, it became more difficult for Parfrey to garner an audience, for once his publications were the only source of controversial and bizarre theories and subject matter, now the internet provided more weird content than his audience could ever hope to consume, and for free. With Feral House losing ground, he and his third wife moved in 2005 from Los Angeles to Port Townsend, Washington on the Olympic Peninsula. While living in Port Townsend, writer and researcher Samuel Corwin befriended Adam Parfrey and later discovered that Parfrey owned the adjacent property and was in fact his neighbor. I spoke with Samuel, who was writing Adam's biography, and we discussed Parfrey and his involvement in the fringe scene in the 1970s and 1980s and whether or not Adam's publishing company, Feral House, helped to spread some of the initial seeds of extremism and fascism that we're seeing emerge now in the paranormal and conspiracy communities. It was sometime in the fall of 2008 or 9, and I was living in the Pacific Northwest in Port Townsend, Washington, and um, I had heard about this event happening in Seattle called the Esoteric Book Conference, and at the time, I was a voracious reader of all things occult, esoteric, mystical, and I was familiar with a number of publishers and authors that would be there speaking or, or vending. One of them was Adam Parfrey of Feral House, who I had been following for a long time. Uh, his book, Apocalypse Culture, had a monumental impact on me, and he seemed like a key player in this underground that existed in the late 80s and 90s that was a very wide web and one that I wanted to investigate. And so he was a, a person I wanted to meet. So I went there and um, did not end up meeting him, actually, because I spent most of my time in the performance section. And when I went out to the vendors to, to walk around and introduce myself, he, he was gone. And there was, there was someone next to him, though, a guy named Michael Moynihan, who uh, has his own press called Dominion Press. And I was talking to him about Adam and uh, kind of didn't realize, of course, this is the Lords of Chaos author. Um, he mentioned that he was going to see Adam later and uh, that he lived in Port Townsend. And my, you know, my brain just split open. And, and I asked, really? And he's like, yeah, yeah, actually, are you from there? And I said, yes. And and uh, he's like, well, maybe you could help me get there. And he showed me a piece of paper that had the address on it. And it was uh, the house right next door from where I lived in Port Townsend. And um, to make a long story short, I told Michael that, you know, him and Adam should come and see me down at the, at the pizza joint where I worked. <laughs> um, because, you know, you have a fan. And they did. And... So I, that's how I got to know Adam, and we became really good friends. He obviously was connected to Shrek, and that, that's part of the scene, right? I mean, that's, that's part of that L.A. scene. Yes, I guess, I guess it was L.A. Shrek was in L.A., and so was Zena LeVay, who was Anton LeVay's daughter. The 888 event was kind of the culmination of of this, this kind of extreme underground counterculture that had kind of a crypto-fascist um, aesthetic. 
you could say, and you know the impetus that through which a lot of these people met, I think, was Adams Exit magazine. Um, in in the early to mid '80s, he produced three volumes of this graphic arts magazine called Exit, <clears throat> which was really extreme, and it had a, a bunch of imagery that involved. Uh, swastikas and Hitler and Charles Manson and it became this hot item in the underground and it was uh, I think it connected a lot of these people who were interested in, in the kind of shock art you know and so Nicholas Schreck first corresponded with Adam after seeing Exit magazine and then they got to they had a correspondence about Manson because Nicholas Schreck was in close contact with Charles Manson at that time he was interviewing him uh, for a movie that he was doing called Charles Manson's Superstar Adam ended up publishing Nicholas's book on Manson called The Manson File you know part of the promotion for that book was organizing this performance called 8888 which was held on the anniversary of the the Sharon Tate killings and uh, the idea behind it was to raise money for a retrial because they felt Manson was unfairly uh, imprisoned and so the performance was this bizarre mix of um, I guess speeches and performances Adam played the Rosemary's Baby theme on oboe you know it was it was a very um, bizarre and twisted event so it's, I read about the 888 thing, and I was like, what the fuck? This is crazy. You know, I knew about the Manson file, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't know about that, but I didn't know that they did the promotional tour thing. You know? Yeah. Well, that was just one show. It was just a one-off. Initially, they were going to do a few around the country. They were going to do one in New York. Actually, I think Sonic Youth was signed on to, to play there, but it got called off because, you know, I think people were starting to get um, real weary about, you know, the the association with, um, you know, Nazi symbolism, because that was big with especially people like Shrek and Boyd Rice. Adam, Adam kind of fed into it, but Shrek, I, I just spoke to Shrek and, and he, you know, he kind of said that Adam, you know, liked to, it was funny to Adam. Adam never took it seriously, but, you know, certain, certainly other people did. <laughs> and I think for a while in the punk subculture, it was, it was cool to like, you know, wear the Iron Cross or, or have a swastika, but I think after a certain time, it, you know, it was this line in the sand that that separated people, and they were they were definitely crossing that intentionally. But do you? I mean, do you think a lot of this springs from that, and through the '90s? A lot of the the more right white white supremacist type stuff, or not even that so much. Just the like, not like the punk scene, but these shows they were having, like the occult scene. Moynihan was very much into the occult too right i mean he was absolutely and that's what i mean it's like it it's you know you talked about that concert that parfrey was at yeah so um you know he was involved with well not the process church themselves but he printed a memoir that was written by timothy wiley who was an elder in the process church he was one of 
one of the core people, you know, right at the beginning in England. And he was with the process for, I think, 15 years at least. And he wrote a, a memoir that Adam published called Love, Sex, Fear, Death. And Adam was really excited about this book because it was one of the first to tell the processian story from an, from an inside perspective. There was always a lot of speculation and what Adam would call conspiracy theories about the process, you know, whether they were um, responsible for the Manson murders or the Son of Sam killings, all number of things that, you know, had dodgy evidence at best. And um, it wasn't that Adam dismissed those theories altogether, but he was curious to, to hear, like, okay, what, what was it like inside the, the church? What was the day-to-day, -day, you know, existence like? And so Timothy fleshed out this memoir and, and Adam, you know, with a lot of Feral House books, it, it was never just one story. He always wanted to include other stuff, anecdotal stuff. And so in that book, it's, it's really cool. He, he included a long form essay by Genesis Peoridge about the the kind of cosmology or theology of the process. And he also included a couple, quote unquote, scriptures from Robert de Grimston, uh, which are really interesting to read. You know, it, it sounds, it, it reads like the Bible, basically. It's very um, kind of flamboyant, very just religious writing, really infused with a faith in whomever they're talking about, whether it's Satan, Christ, Lucifer, or... Um, Who's the other one? Jehovah. So yeah, he was really excited about that book and he wanted to go all out. And so he organized this national tour where he he got together a band that played the original hymnals. Um, they actually still had sheet music and lyrics from the, the process uh, services from back in the 60s and 70s. And so they got a band together to learn all those. And also Adam and Timothy and couple other people involved would do the rituals live on stage. Um, you know, Adam would play the part of of the, the priest or, you know, there were various roles. They had elaborate names for, for each person, but it was incredibly theatrical, kind of like a psychodrama, you know, very Jodorowsky-type performance. And, uh, you know, it added this whole new element to well, the book and also the perspective of the Process Church, because, you know, you could almost see this tour as being a kind of revival. And it did spark a lot of controversy. A lot of people had very negative impressions of it, that it was, you know, satanic or it was kind of, you know, paying tribute to these people who might, may have been responsible for for serial murders. <laughs> um, but that's that was Adam, you know, he liked to um, he liked to poke people's brains a bit, you know, even if it meant, uh, you know, him being perceived as, as this uh, devilish trickster type figure. I think he, he relished in that, actually. And Adam, you know, I had this confirmed speaking to another one of his friends recently, who I was talking to to see if she could give me any more information on the <clears throat> Adam's ties to, to Liberty Lobby or Carto or other far right groups that might have funded him and she you know she kind of laughed at that she said it's possible but it wouldn't have been mutually beneficial like maybe it would have been beneficial for carto or whoever was behind this group but it wouldn't have been really beneficial for adam you know she said about adam that someone that he always brought up that he admired was um alan abel um, he was a famous hoaxer, and 
and basically made a career out of orchestrating media hoaxes. You should look him up. He's hilarious. He, you know, one of his stunts was he was he was trying to seriously argue that horses are always dragging their ass, and so they they need to wear diapers. And so he had this whole campaign to get、um, people on board with. Advocating for horses to wear diapers—I mean, just insane shit. Kind of goofy, but some of them actually worked.、Um, he orchestrated、um, with the audience to do like a every everybody fainted at the same time. So it was this experiment in mass hysteria,、uh, which was it worked and you know freaked a lot of people out. But at, this is someone Adam you know held up as 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 like、uh, you know an idol. And I found that to be really interesting. She had never brought him up before, nor had Adam. But she knows Adam really well; goes back almost thirty years. And she knew Adam way back when, you know, Adam knew people in the IHR. She wrote for the IHR.、Uh, but she, you know, in the end, thinks Adam was more of a hoaxer. Yeah, the kind of Zen master slapping you in the face to experience. You know, some kind of change in consciousness. That's that's how I saw it. You know, I mean, that's what it did to me because I grew up in a small conservative town. You know, so encountering material like Adams basically was, you know, a deconditioning course in the form of dynamite. It it really、um, revealed a lot of layers to society that you know I was just not aware of. But yeah, you know, once it, once the dust all settles, you're you're trying to、um, sort through it all, and you you do find these weird traces of、um, you know the racist ideology, and it is strange that it coexists the subculture, and <clears throat> that's something that I'm trying to investigate. You know where where that came from and why and. Who was behind pushing it? Who really was pushing it? Who was unwitting? Who was witting? Because it, it's really easy to just call a bunch of people fascists or Nazis, right? But I, I think it's a lot more complex than that. And, and that I'm not apologizing for any of them. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, it's it's a murky world, and the, the minute you start looking into the politics of it,、uh, it gets a lot stranger. <laughs> Isn't that one of the things that's so crazy about this? Is like. Politics is a powerful force, right? And、yeah. it's and it's a murky place. But it's like when you mix magic and politics, you know, it's a strange concept to think of. You know, politicize magic. You know, mystical. You know, mystical politics in a sense. Um, yeah, I mean, but it, you know, it makes perfect sense though, because I mean, magic operates on symbols and imbuing these symbols with power, and you know, a lot of the occult path, I think, for many people is about accruing power and the ability to affect change, and some people maybe literally get possessed by that desire, you know, and become just—I don't know what you would call them—like、uh, vehicles. To uh, push um, certain ideologies and mind forms through. Dr. Ronaldo Anderson, associate professor of Africology and African American Studies at Temple University in Philadelphia, who we spoke with this season in episode four, has been researching the connections between fascism, esotericism, and politics for a number of years. Word you're looking for that'll help you narrow down your research is the word esotericism. That's like, for instance, Steve Bannon 
who was the guy for Trump. Now that dude's really smart. You know, my I don't agree with him politically, but he's clearly very intelligent, whatever. Real, you know, real right wing. I mean, beyond conservative. Like when I ask somebody when they say they're conservative, I say, oh, so you're familiar with the work of Edmund Burke? Who's that? I'm like, well, he wrote a book called Reflections on the Revolution in France. So they're not really conservative. They, they're, you know, disaffected or whatever. I mean, they don't know the difference between libertarianism, conservatism. Uh, what? See, Bannon is a big fan of the Italian uh, esoteric guy, uh, Eviola, you know, and Eviola was way out there, you know, for the Italians talking about the idea, you know, he, I don't know if I want to call Eviola like the Italian Nietzsche, but he is talking about these cycles of history. And a lot of people that study esotericism know that when the Northern Europeans come up with this Aryan myth, they appropriate a lot of Hindu mythology about this idea of how then going back to these areas, and then they take this Hindu symbolism to kind of, in this esoteric fashion, to construct these certain type of myths as a way of dealing with the, uh, the uh, coming of modernity and reaction to the Enlightenment, you know, and, and rationalism to, and scientific rationalism. And, and most people, now they're fine. See, esotericism now has just become a respectable scholarly thing the last 10 years. And so now they're all busting out with stuff. And that's why I tell people, even at the metaphysical roots of, you're talking about African-American Afrofuturism, it, it starts in the esoteric tradition. That's what Sun Ra was into. You, know, you got to go, and in the, in, in the United States, the godfather is Pascal Beverly Randolph. You know, he was a 19th century sex magician, middle of the 19th century abolitionist, uh, was one of the biggest, what is it, not heroin, I, the biggest importer export of hashish in the United States in the 19th century, and apparently was an enemy of Helen Blavatsky, okay? And so there, uh, but he dies young. Uh, and that's why a lot of people don't realize that the American spiritualist tradition starts with this guy named Pascal Beverly Randolph. Because I believe Blavat the rest of these people were like European imports where Randolph is like a, an American-born person who starts into spiritualism, Rosicrucianism, theosophy, influences some of the Europeans, you know, so he's a couple generations ahead of Aleister Crowley, you know, so most Americans, they know about Blavatsky, but they don't know about Pascal Beverly Randolph because he dies at a young age from like an aneurysm or something, Ooh, like right at the end of the, after the end of the Civil War. And so, and then after the Civil War, the next big guy that comes to think that people might know is Noble Drew Ali in the Moore Science Temple late 1890s, first decade of the 20th century. And so this esotericism or hidden knowledge, you basically track it all the way back to the alchemists. And then the alchemists, of course, get it from Moorish traders and scholars that are from North Africa. And it comes out of the remains of the leftovers of Egyptian civilization, some of the Sumerian and Babylonian stuff uh, mixed in with it. And that's why it was called hidden knowledge, something that, you know, that was just passed between adepts and so forth. And in the 1920s, many people that were in the Harlem Renaissance were influenced by esoteric uh, practices of Gurdjieff and Uspensky. People like Zora Neale Hurston uh, mixes in this esotericism with her Black Southern folklore. And other people like Gene Toomer, the novelist, Aaron Douglas, the Harlem Renaissance painter, and George Schuyler, who wrote Black Empire. So but there's, uh, you know, and the thing is, 
this country has been infected mostly by three kind of different countries out of Europe that got into esotericism. For like in England, you have the Golden Dawn. You know, people. That's Aleister Crowley's boys. But then also, what has become recent now in Germany was the fraternity of the Brotherhood of Saturn, fraternity Satana. I'm that's that kind of arises in the 1920s and doesn't go public till the 70s. And then you got the the French with Eli. Um, and then it starts with an L. Laugh, laugh, laugh something. And all these people knew each other. You know, traveled in similar circles, had those seances and stuff like that. And this, there, because in the 19th century, there was this big fascination with Egyptology and the hidden knowledge and stuff that had survived the Middle Ages and, and Renaissance coming from alchemists like Albertus Magnus and Paracelsus and, and those kind of cats going back to the 12th century. We, and that's why the people that are the deepest into Europe were the Germans. You know, that's how a lot of that stuff influences their romantic literature and some of uh, the stuff related to German uh, idealism and, and, and roots of, of fascism, you know, uh, when it, you know, it kind of got on steroids to a certain extent. And that's why uh, early in the 20th century, you had a group called the Berlin Futurists, who were a lot of Jewish practitioners, because most people in the early 20th century, there are scholarship they call even when Einstein, because he was Jewish, they called it Jewish magic, you know, Kabbalism, you know, his theory of relativity and stuff. And so but on, on a certain level, World War II was also an occult war. You know, the Nazis were also an occult organization and they, and they were dedicated to wiping out all of the other kind of mystic organizations in Europe. They killed the gypsies along with the Jewish because they got so they're. So most people don't realize on a metaphysical level, World War II was also an occult war, you know, in terms of combining the occult with political science and, and blood and soil and all these other kind of things. So you could say that 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 that, that Nazism was applied eso, white nationalist esotericism to the extreme, which is why that country has been fascinated with that stuff for centuries. And really, people the last 20 years are just now acknowledging it, that that wasn't just a political. That's why the thing with Bannon and some of the troubles, you can't just look at them as a political movement. It is also a, uh, a stuff linked to the occult or esotericism, Eviola, and all these other ideas. And so you can't appeal to them based upon, you know, the ideas of Edmund Burke and all these other people. They are looking at a, their raison d'etre is like, um, and that's why so many of them, people like David Duke and all, on a certain level, they resonate with each other philosophically. And, and, and Trump just kind of was the one that let the cat out of the bag. You know, in terms of allowing these people to freely express these um, uh, beliefs. And what you really have right now, politically, and people, I guess Biden can't talk about it, that what's being set up now, I think what you would, and I'll just put, use plain spoken English so I don't talk above people. You could say white liberal elites have come to the conclusion now that they're going to have to offer concessions to black and brown people to beat down the neo-Nazi esoteric, bananist, you know, movement in this country. And we know they did that before with the Civil War. <laughs> you know, they emancipate whatever it is and then burn the South down. You know, they did that in World War II where they said they had to use the French colonial troops out of Senegal, create the Tuskegee Airmen. And that's why I always tell people when I went to Germany and gave a talk in Bavaria, I was like, man, people don't study. What the hell a country like Germany, not much larger than the size of one of our states 
what made their stuff so powerful that they were just kicking the world's ass for a minute? And and the fact that Hitler said his only weakness was if he'd have been a member of the English-speaking world instead of the German-speaking world, he'd have ruled the world if he'd been over the English-speaking world. And and the fact that a lot of those countries in Europe fell to Nazism fairly quickly because a lot of people believed in what he was talking about. You know, you had not just German SS units, you had Romanian units, you had Norwegian units, Swedish units. So people don't really want to talk about half of Europe was believing in that stuff. And I tell people, no, just don't put it on the Germans now. There were a whole lot of people that were riding with him at that time. And and it took the uh, the liberal and modernist West, along with its colonial troops and other people they were practicing segregation with, everything they had to stomp it out. And it was a near thing. And then you threw in the Japanese. That's how close it was, you know, how how, how really close it was. And after the war, uh, Pearl Buck uh, had said that in the 1930s, some of the stuff we're dealing with now, they knew this a hundred years ago, that like when Spangler writes The Decline of the West, that the irrationalism that led to the butchery in World War One, if they did it again, the West would never recover. And then they went and did it again, you know. And Pearl Buck, the, the really smart, forward-thinking liberal said, look, man, if we don't find a way to get along with people who are different with us, we're going to rue the day <laughs> of that. And they said it 100 years back in the 1930s. People were liberal writers. They saw this 90 to 100 years ago. Cosmism is making a comeback. You know, this thing about uh, with Putin and the Russian Orthodox Church, which has its own branch of mysticism and Russian cosmism, which was huge in the 1890s is making a comeback. So it's kind of like, think about it as uh, 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 Samuel Huntington's book, The Clash of Civilizations, is also there's a clash of occultisms or esotericisms mixed in with these clash of civilizations. So the Russians are going back into this heavily Russian uh, traditionalist, cosmist thing mixed with their particular form of nationalism. You have um, uh, what's going on in, in, in Germany with the research of them, and then also to a certain extent the Italians, and, and you have some of that in different parts of Africa. Uh, I think in different parts of India, that's amongst a lot of that stuff is mixed up with that uh, Modi and the Hindu nationalist movement there. And about the only thing that's thrown all that stuff off is COVID-19 has torn that shit all up. And because the people forgot to govern, <laughs> you know, people are like, oh, fuck this mystic shit. Give me a damn needle in my ass or something, you know. You know, so I'm just saying that's why this whole thing, this esoteric occult war is going on. It's going on on multiple levels. You know, it's, it's attached to the occult, currency, all this stuff. And it's intergenerational in scope, and and they don't, and that's why I think change is happening so fast. They don't know what's going to happen, and that's why on a certain level, man, those accelerationist right-wing fascists—they're they're dangerous. David Southwell's Hookland, a lost county of England, was first featured in the 1980 publication of a guidebook to the county by Phoenix Garages as part of their series, Strange England. As the story goes, after Margaret Thatcher's redefinition of Britain's county boundaries, the fictional Hookland vanished. 
David Southwell weaves a series of nonfiction texts dealing with conspiracy theory and true crime around this premise. It seeks a return to a time in England when the weird was treated as normal and horror was seen as an everyday affair. Novelist Fiona Mayer has written of Hookland that these perspectives have been edited out of the cultural dialogue, and she sees it as having the intent of returning these lost perspectives to the world. David's project is one of re-enchantment, which he sees as an act of resistance against the way the British national narrative was going in the 21st century, even before Brexit. Southwell uses the term ghost soil to encompass all the folklore, all the high strangeness that grew and bloomed in the gloriously strange TV, film, and books I grew up with as a child in the 1970s. The combination of dramaturgy and location choice defamiliarizes these sites in an act of, to use another of the terms Southwell often applies to the Hookland Project, re-weirding. So I'm happy to speak about Hookland the way I didn't think I know about it, right? With the caveat that uh, Hookland is David Southwell's project. Uh, he will tell you that he is only the Hookland guide, right? That's uh, his is uh, at on Twitter, the Hukulan Guide. And and you can see him as the, well, as the demiurge, but the positive demiurge, not a negative demiurge, that pretty much led you, led, leads you through this, well, this fascinating uh, trip to this strange county in England, which is a place that you've been, but you will never be able to find again on the maps. So, and, uh, and I remember reading this at a very, I mean, I remember, I mean, I knew David, who David Southwell was because uh, it was a known name in the, in the London community, London cult community. Um, it was kind of a group that was right before my time. I started living in London in late, late 2012, early 2013, and I started immediately like hanging out in you know Threadwells, um, Atlantis, and Watkins, and then going, I mean, there were some moots at the time, which is like pagan uh, gatherings. But I remember that everybody was speaking about David Southwell, but he was not around anymore. I, mean, I think at the time he got married and got, kind of disappeared from you know occult to public life. But he was well known as, well, a canning man. Canning man is an interesting term because it represents a very specific kind of practitioner here in the UK. It is the witch before the Wiccans, right? It is the witch that maybe doesn't really, really follow. I mean, that's why he doesn't doesn't care about Gerald Gardner, but he's been working with the land. He's been working with the with the season. He's been working with the magic that really steeps from that liminal space you know everybody speaks about the liminal space nowadays we do here i mean on penny royal we, we spoke a lot about liminality well the cunning man is literally like the original liminal figure right he is the one that stands at the crossroads usually the concept of course of crossroads i guess everybody knows pretty well what that means right and he, st- he, st- he stays at that place the thing with him that with david is that he, his cunning goes beyond witchcraft because for the longest time he's also been a very well-known spin doctors for the UK, for the UK. Well, let's say for the media of the UK. You know, when when people like this, they always some legends like, do they have connection with intelligence? Do they not? Cannot possibly say. <laughs> you know, right? But it's 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 an interesting idea to entertain. So like he's been it's been at the crossroads of many different worlds. For me, it was like, well, it makes sense that it's, it's David that is actually channeling this word from somewhere else. 
And what I love about it is that if you read it, and you can read everything on, on Twitter, right? There's some articles on, on Weird Days magazine, well, fanzine really, it's, you can find it online for free. There is some printed articles on the Ritual and Decorations um, magazine done by Paul Watson. But most of it, like if you want to read about Hukun, if you want to lose yourself in Hukun, you just have to go on Twitter, follow like the hashtag and read the stories. And those stories are real. Those war, those those voices come from I don't know from actual people, right? They just don't exist in the physical world the way me and you exist in the physical world right now. But there is an hookland, and I say this because I had my own experiences with it that were really transformative. Uh, around 2017, it was you know we had this discussion before, like when I when I first like started getting away from the OTO, uh, realizing that it was a bunch of fascists, etc., etc., etc. And I was looking for a different kind of magic. I'm still looking for a different kind of magic. Incidentally, this is why you know the the call that you have you hear in Hellier about John Tennis say like this wants a new magic always very resonated with me. I still think you know one has to decode you know the Star Sapphire, but it it. it, it it's important to find new magic. It's important to move away from the, from from the from the from from the kind of magic that you found in lodges in since the Victorian time, and Hukun gives you that opportunity because if you lose yourself into the stories, the stories will start to seep into this world. There are there are fundamental like two two important messages in Hukun, and the most one important one is you know reenchantment is resistance. That is the idea, like bringing enchantment back into the world. Of course, we know that. That's all the Penny Royal has been doing. Uh, that's all we've been doing, right? But the other one, is like, was is really like folklore against fascism. Being born in Rome, I know fascism very well, unfortunately. And fascism really is the perversion of folklore. It's the, as you said, is creating a false narrative that becomes very, very interesting, very beautiful, very empowering for a lot of people that not only felt disenchanted and disempowered, but they are being, they're being disempowered by the same people that could that control and create the narrative for them. You've seen that you've seen with Trump, you've seen in the I would say you've seen with American imperialism, but that might be contentious, right? But uh, but the idea is that that is not that is not the good folklore. That is the folklore being perverted. That is folklore becoming like sheer nationalism. Uh, like like I said, like you just believe that you have a connection with a land that you don't know possibly because you never walked it. You never walked the land, and just because somebody told you that you were born there, so your blood is different than somebody that was born in a different place. Well, that is absolutely the opposite of the message of Ukun, because the message of Ukun and what they has been trying to to say very loud is that there's no space of that in actual folklore and there's no space for that in actual you know in hookland because it's all about liminality and liminality is mixing matching like it's like it's you can't speak about you know blood and soil if it's all about mixing all the possible blood with not even with your fellow humans but with with the other all the other creatures that are there right and all the other intelligences and consciousness that are there this is very this is a very uh, very harsh and, uh, and and terrible pill to swallow for all various fascists out there because it really challenges their very idea that it's all about 
being born on a soil as opposed to instead walking it and walking everywhere, moving away from your land, going and find new lands, going and find new places and being open to the experience and being respectful of those who live there. It's the, it's the power opposite. Uh, I would say that I, I really think that people should should read Hookland, read the tweets, read the stories, and through the stories, you will be inspired to go up and walk. And maybe you will find your own Hookland wherever you are. But you, this, this is where you like. This is the kind of magic we need. The, the, the. I mean, there is, there is a, there's a saying in Latin, which is solvitur ambulando, which means you solve it by walking. And possibly, what you solve is the great work. Like I remember hearing, you know, the words of Emin Banting, which is one of the like one of the cunning women in Hukun, or Ciel Nolan, which is like this this Edwardian writer that speaks about, you know, the old county that describes all the county. And it's so the message there, and of course there are many other voices. And it's interesting because it's all David. It's it's basically he's channeling all this all these characters and they all are different. Like they all have different stories, different voices. And, but the, there is one message about their their new magic is the magic of, of the flaneur, is the magic of the wanderer, is the magic of the person that goes in the world into the into the again goes looking for the liminal spaces in a way where in with an open mind and an open heart, so that this liminality can seeps into him. I was I started taking walks around London, and uh, there were plenty of times I go around just walking and reading bits and pieces from it. And I'll tell you, I'm gonna tell you a story. It's like, oh, come on, Marco, this is insane. You're talking to me, of course, it's gonna be insane. But I remember there's been plenty of times that, you know, you would just start to like, maybe put your head up from the phone where I was reading the, the stories as I was walking. And the words seemed still. And the, maybe like the, the sky tint was weird. It was no, maybe, I mean, I, I, we're talking about London, right? So most of the time it's gray, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, but it was, it was like a greenish gray, you know, kind of stuff like that. And uh, there is a lot of places in this city. This, London is beautiful because it really is a place where you find the Victoriana melding it with the, the ultra modern. And again, that's liminal, right? This this almost like this two long, long distance points in time that got meld together. And those were the moments where, you know, I remember walking into little, little, um, I say, city gardeners, gardens that I was never able to find again, ever. I, I never met anyone there. Uh, I never met, you know, this is, this is the point of the story where it would be great to say, and then I met someone, like a strange person that came and gave me something. Unfortunately, I haven't. Um, there were a time where I could tell you, I mean, we're talking about, I was walking in um, Bermondsey, which is south of the river in London. It's a, very, it's a very modern place. It's one of those places, if you know what is the Shard in London, is one of the area where where you can see the Shard pretty much. So it's very modern, but it's, there's a lot of Victoriana, like old Victorian buildings around. And I remember walk, walking into one of these like city gardens I never found again. Of course, as I mentioned, you can have Google Maps, right? You could find it very easily if you wanted. And there was a tree, and it was like this almost like old, very old, like willow tree, which is also weird because willows usually are you know, near uh, bodies of water. There was no body of water there. And I can tell you, like, this tree was singing. I, it's, it's something that I was hearing, like, it's almost like a music coming from this tree. I, I remember that that thing really, like, stuck me as, 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 as struck me as crazy. Like, what, how, how am I deciding to go on a walk 
to just try and find the weird and I find the weird. And it's not something that I can, I mean, I, I didn't take any pictures or recorded anything, possibly because when I'm in the stage in the States, really I, I want to get loose as much as possible. Because I'm, maybe I, I should start recording like the experiences, but I'm, I've, I never had like the approach of the, uh, of the, the paranormal investigator. I always had the approach of the magician. Like I go for the experience. I want to have the experience. So in the end of the day, what I have is just my stories, but I'll tell you, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that if you, if, if you come, if you come over, I think it's something that it's very tied to this land. And this is something that David says a lot, like Hookland is county of England. And then he speaks about Repton, which is the lost borough of London. And possibly that's where I was because it was, of course, I was in London, right? But I'm not sure that you could do it somewhere else. Like right? I, I think you must be physically in the place. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, possibly, you know, maybe somebody will prove me wrong, prove me wrong, will tell me, no, actually I have my experience there. But I think there's something about the land, something about being, walking the land, being in the land. A physical con con connection is important. You know, long story short, I genuinely think that the future of magic is in, it's found in walking. Uh, it's 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 very reductive, say it like this, right? I'm not saying I'm not discounting ceremonial magic. I mean, I grew up with that. I'm not. I, I know the power of that. Uh, I'm not discounting, um, you know, rituals, sigils, all the things we discussed plenty of times. But there's there's a new magic that's coming up, which is tied to reconnecting to the land and walk the land, and possibly. You know, if you if you are able to, you know, to maybe codify that magic, you know, like, okay, I can teach you how to do this. I can teach you how to tap into the liminal by reading this, this, the stories and like the stories start walking, working with you or with your, well, I would call your body of light, you know, your, your aura. And then you are transported there for a second or maybe for an hour. Then again, it's not so difficult with the idea of, again, the fairy uh, the fairy hosts come and, and pick you up, right? With David, we had this um, this plan. It's still up. Um, we, we will, I don't know when it was going to happen. To establish a fairy embassy, like to establish like an embassy between Hookland and fairy, because it's 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 something that um, I, I mean, what David told me is that I mean, the magic of Hookland come from fairy, and of course, then you can also infer. What is fairy? Well, that's why you found UFOs as well. So that's as you can see, all the things mixed together and blend together. The theory and practice of psychogeography had been around since 1955, when French theorist Guy Debord coined the term. In his essay, Introduction to a Critique of Urban Geography, Debord defines psychogeography as the study of the precise laws and specific effects of the geographical environment, consciously organized or not, on the emotions and behavior of individuals. Psychogeography is the exploration of the psychological effects created by interactions with an urban environment. The board also intended it as a political statement, defiance of the capitalist system, and as a seizure of power and a mode of play. The reimagining of the city proposed by psychogeography has its roots in Dadaism and Surrealism, art movements which explored ways of unleashing the subconscious imagination. Psychogeographers advocate the act of becoming lost in the city. This is done through the derive, or drift, because purposeful walking has an agenda, we do not adequately absorb certain aspects of the urban world. This is why the drift is essential to psychogeography. It better connects the walkers, or flaneurs, to the city. The term flaneur is a decadent concept from the 1890s with its origins in the French verb which means to stroll. 
A flaneur does not walk with purpose. They stroll in order to experience the city and their surroundings. Anyone can be a flaneur. Charles Baudelaire, who coined the term flaneur to mean a strolling wanderer of the city, was a famous 19th century French poet who did a lot of walking around Paris, from one absinthe cafe to another. This idea of the gentleman stroller, both an observer who sees the diverse movement of human life and someone who is actively involved in that life, had a significant influence on the dandy culture which was so beloved by people like Oscar Wilde, who also identified himself as a flaneur. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned the situationalists also, because, you know, that's the origin of uh, Exquisite Corpse mm-hmm. and the whole, you know, this divining through cutting up articles and newspaper articles yeah. that, you know, Burroughs and all those guys were uh, involved. Well, in. Yeah, and that's what I think, like, personally, when when I first got into to, uh, synchromysticism, I was already primed because I was like a young radical. Um, I was already primed with the situationist critique of the city and with how uh, the city is structured to control people, control movements, et cetera. And so the situationists wanted to um, kind of turn that upside down. And like, they came up with this idea of uh, uh, deriva. And that was to kind of just like wander aimlessly and and creative play that was like a revolutionary act. So I was already like into that idea and other ideas like temporary Thomas zones and stuff like that. That was like that kind of late, late nineties leftist stuff. And I was growing out all that, but I still really like just like wandering and kind of that idea of, of wander and play. And then when I got turned on the synchromistic stuff, it was like, wow, like it took it to another level because I would like wander into something to see some kind of weird symbolism and find out the history of this building and this street and whose name is on that street. And like, it just kind of combined. I think I was really primed by that situationist kind of stuff. But when you mix that, the situationist view of the city with the synchromysticism, that was kind of like... That was kind of my bag at the time. James Shelby Downer Jr. was a flaneur as well. He was the wandering conspiracist, the gentleman observer, driving across America in his silver airstream, taking note of the mystical connections between places and constructing a vast tapestry of synchronicities and mysteries. More likely, he was chasing his ex-wife across the U.S. from St. Petersburg, Florida, to La Jolla, California. But again... It's a good story, and it's further evidence of romanticized racism. Downard's writings, if they are his writings, supported segregation. They're riddled with racist slurs and anti-Semitism. We're supposed to accept that his co-authors are white supremacists, anti-Semites, and historical revisionists. But look past that and see the magic and mystery of a particularly American synchromysticism, a deeper national magic that harkens back to a time before when everything was good in America and everyone was white, a time that never existed. But this romanticized view of mystical America makes sense, especially in terms of Downard as the wandering flaneur. Because as the story goes, Jack Kerouac and Downard probably knew one another. There's even evidence that suggests taped recordings of Downard and Kerouac exist. And so the question has to be asked, 
What connection did Jack Kerouac have to far-right extremists and the American Nazi Party while he was living in St. Petersburg, Florida in the 1970s? Jack Kerouac, for generations of Americans, was the ultimate wanderer and flaneur. He defined the beat generation and kicked off wandering in America, hitchhiking and traveling the roads to find adventure and to find yourself. Kerouac is the quintessential anti-establishment icon, revolutionary, and enduring symbol of cool. His 1957 classic novel, On the Road, became required reading for the counterculture. It was based on the travels of Kerouac and his friends across the United States in the 1950s, with its protagonists living life against a backdrop of jazz, poetry, and drug use. The novel is a Romana Clef with many key figures of the beat movement, such as William S. Burroughs as Old Bull Lee, Allen Ginsberg as Carlo Marx, and Neil Cassidy as Dean Moriarty, including Kerouac himself as the narrator, Sal Paradise. The only people for me are the mad ones, the ones who are mad to live, mad to talk, desirous of everything at the same time. Jack Kerouac wrote in On the Road. The legend of how Jack Kerouac wrote the book. Fueled by coffee and Benzedrine, Kerouac sat down at his typewriter and supposedly wrote the book in just 20 days, typing it out on a single 120-foot long scroll of paper. Kerouac often portrayed himself as a free spirit and a wanderer, and he frequently boasted about how many women he had slept with. He was also a raging alcoholic and died in 1969 at the age of 47 from the consequences, from the consequences of his drinking. Barry Miles, author of Kerouac, King of Beats, paints a more accurate depiction of Kerouac. There's a disparity between the image and the actual man. He didn't live the actual beat lifestyle. He really lived in the suburbs with his mother, who was a fiercely overprotective and vocal anti-Semite. Miles describes Kerouac both as a racist who said in On the Road that he wished he were black, and as an anti-Semite whose best friend, Ginsburg, was a Jew. Kerouac even banned Ginsburg from visiting him at the house where Kerouac lived with his mother because of his mother's anti-Semitism. Miles also states that Kerouac himself became more and more racist and anti-Semitic as he got older. Kerouac and other beatnik authors of the 1950s promoted romanticized racism. They maintained middle-class suburban families as the cultural ideal, upheld and silently supported racial segregation, and despised or ignored black achievements in literature, art, and music, particularly jazz. They add to the myth of a post-World War II golden age in America, when the nation was riding the high of winning the war and being crowned a world superpower. Anything seemed possible in that majestic glow. Except segregation and rampant racism was still a reality. Women were still considered the second sex, as Simone de Beauvoir articulated in her book of the same name. And anti-Semitism was more popular than ever. But forget about those ugly details. Things were never better. Kerouac's ties to the extreme right and fascism seem to be corroborated by our research into James Shelby Downard. In the introduction to King Kill 33 on his Revisionist History website, Michael Hoffman describes meeting Downard for the first time. I remember sitting in Shelby's Airstream trailer in St. Petersburg, Florida in 1977, along with the great Fordian philosopher William N. Grimstead and Charles Saunders, 
a brilliant recluse who was a close friend of Jack Kerouac toward the end of the beat writer's life, a fact missed by every one of Kerouac's numerous biographers. In an interview with another researcher, Hoffman stated that he knew Charles Saunders and his family well, including his brother and extraordinary mother, Mildred, who was also a friend and counselor to Jack Kerouac's mother. Hoffman also stated that Saunders' father was Professor Alexander Saunders, an English professor and an authority on the Hicksite Quakers. There's also an article in the Tampa Bay Times dated December the 14th, 1973, A Quiet Intellect's Calculated Hatred, written by the staff writer Fred Girard, about Richard Saunders, an admitted Nazi and member of the American Socialist White People's Party in St. Petersburg, Florida. The article explains his involvement in the American Nazi Party and that his father was an English professor at Texas A&M and the University of Oklahoma, which is indeed where Alexander Saunders was a professor. The article also mentions that Richard Saunders was a former member of the KKK before joining the American Socialist White People's Party in Washington, D.C., eventually leaving both. A letter from James Shelby Downer to researcher Ian Blake on January the 25th, 1993, explains that Downer was delayed in publishing his manuscript in the 1970s because of a series of thefts in St. Petersburg by a boy who was a former member of the KKK and the National Socialist Party in Washington, D.C., but had severed ties with both. Downer alleges in his letter, quote, I discovered that the Roman Catholic Nazi Ku Kluxer was stealing from me with the help of his brother. It seems to me, taking all of this into account and the dates of these articles and letters, that Downard is referring to Richard Saunders and his brother, Charles, who was best friends with Jack Kerouac. One might assume from all of this that Jack Kerouac was spending his days in St. Petersburg, Florida with the Saunders brothers, Grimstead and Hoffman, Nazis, Ku Kluxers, and fascists. When I work on project, I end up having a lot of these fucking weird synchronicities. And there's this dude, uh, and uh, I've been in contact with him over the years because he read my Manson book and he dig it and somehow got a hold of me. And he'll call me once every 10 years. So I'm polite to him, whatever. He had some shit on, you know, like the ultimate evil with Maury Terry. He was trying to find Maury Terry had some unpublished stuff or something related to that the last time. And this time he called me a couple weeks ago before I really started uh, discovering what you were up to and some of these other leads. He said that this guy who wrote Memory Babe, his name is Gerald. He didn't even say his name, but his name is Gerald. And, Nicosia. He's trying to republish this new version that has more about uh, Jack Kerouac's uh, political leanings towards the end of his life, right wing, I guess. Uh, but I thought I had a copy of this, but maybe I have a pretty in-depth book. And this isn't, you know, the new version with this new material, but I saw one review, and I'm pulling up the review page. One of the uh, people who reviewed it said, and the title is, Jack Kerouac burned a cross in an African-American neighborhood while screaming racist slurs. And it says, the reviewer says, goes on to say, it's a well-established fact, attested to by witnesses, and yet he gets a pass. His racism excused away or blurred out of other biographies. This book is the only one that confronts his legend and reveals what an utterly despicable man he was. 
You may be familiar with Michael M. Hughes from his famous worldwide hexing of President Donald Trump. He's also the author of Magic for the Resistance, Rituals for Spells and Change. When I arrived at the Strange Realities Conference hosted by Conspiranormals Adam Sane and Sir Phil Stevenson in 2021, Michael was giving a presentation on conspiracy without theory, a phrase coined by Nancy L. Rosenblum and Russell Moirhead, the authors of A Lot of People Are Saying, The New Conspiracism and the Assault on Democracy. After the conference, he and I discussed how the conspiracy and paranormal communities have changed in the last few years and why conspiracy without the theory is so dangerous. I'm Michael M. Hughes. Um, I always stick the M in there because there's a lot of Michael Hugheses out there. I'm the guy who uh, who came to a bit of infamy with the uh, spell to bind Donald Trump and all those who abet him in 2017, which I uh, posted on the old internet. is a bit of a kind of a fun little lark, and then it blew up and went globally viral and was just kind of it was ridiculously overwhelming i mean it became my whole life for for several months and then it it became a ritual that was done by thousands sometimes ten thousands of people uh all over the world to to bind donald trump and keep him from doing harm and to drive him out of office so contrary with to what some other occultists may say it worked we did a ritual we got rid of donald trump took a while but it worked so yeah i'm a practicing magician although i'm an agnostic magician and i you know, so I kind of half believe what I'm doing is real. Uh, sometimes it works, and that always kind of blows my mind. I'm a writer. My book, Magic for the Resistance, Rituals and Spells for Change, came out a few years ago from Llewellyn, but I also am a novelist. I've written a trilogy called the Blackwater Lights Trilogy, which kind of wrapped up all my crazy love of conspiracies and weird shit into a, uh, a trilogy uh, uh, novel. And uh, and I've been an activist ever since I was a kid. I, I, I became introduced to the No Nukes movement by a hippie guy I thought was really cool when I was about 13 and freaked out my parents when I came home and uh, told them I was now an anti-nuclear activist. I really hate injustice when I see it. I've never been able to tolerate it. I hate Nazis. Um, I hate bigotry and prejudice and uh, in all its forms. And that's kind of inspired what I do. The book, which which I, I thought really nailed this, is it's called "A Lot of People Are Saying," and that is really the key phrase. Um, it was a key phrase of Trump. I mean, he said it all the time. Um, well, a lot of, I don't know, but a lot of people are saying, you know, and it really nails the idea of conspiracy theory and then what we're seeing now which is conspiracy without the theory and the difference is you know back when when i was into conspiracies um you know whether it's jfk whether it's like 9 11 you know truthers or whatever it was always about like actually finding data and making connections in real stuff you know you know digging through archives even just like internet searching and things like that, but it was based on on finding bits of data and connecting those bits of data and making something out of it. So there was there's theorizing, you know, it's putting together theories that, you know, might be kooky, but at least there's some sort of, you know, underlying some sort of 
rationale for it. You know, no matter how kooky it is, at least you're still trying to say, well, this happened and this happened and this guy's here and this person was here and this idea. And you're just trying to wrap that all up and make it bring some kind of sense to to the randomness or the or the pile of data, the data that you're working with. Um, so that's that's conspiracy theory. But what we're seeing now is conspiracy without the theory. It's driven by repetition and like hearsay and the way it works is like well you know yeah i i i mean i don't know if uh if obama is a, a muslim you know i don't know but a lot of people are saying he's a muslim um i don't know i don't know if jfk jr's really died in plane crash and he's going to come back a lot of people are saying he didn't die he's going to come back so you know and so it's this this idea that a lot of people are saying it and where a lot of people are saying it they're saying in social media the prime vector for this kind of conspiracy without the theory so if every time you open facebook you're confronted with you know pandemic stuff and you know your cousin your uncle your brother-in-law everybody's you know or hey um you know the shooting didn't really happen or um you know uh, or black black lives matter out there you know they're really the ones who are you know they're you know secret agents and they're fomenting all this this stuff that's being blamed on the good old trumpers and things like that so this stuff people just say it and they say it and it gets passed along and, and why would you not believe it if everybody within your little social circle is saying the same stuff and it's getting repeated over and you turn on the tv and the only channel everybody you know watches is saying the same thing the, the repetition itself you know creates the belief system you know so it's not tied to, and that's why the the QAnon stuff just kind of took off you know it's fun it's like kind of a an arg you know or a larp that you're all doing together and it's just it's that that thrill of finding the connections but you don't need to dig you know you don't need to like think it's all just presented to you so this idea of conspiracy without the theory the craziest stuff if it gets repeated enough it just becomes normal you know it, the, the the kookiest shit gets normalized and then that's your reality and you you don't need to get out the the cork board and draw the lines because some guys you know putting the pieces together for you and you don't need to do any thinking by yourself it's conspiracy without the theory there's no need to dig to theorize to share and kind of peer review stuff it's just strictly by repetition and by the other part of conspiracy without the theory is just that you embrace it as part of your identity it's like a tribal it becomes like a tribal political belief system why would you not believe that you know democrats are eating babies and snorting adrenochrome you know because everybody's saying it first of all and it also defines you like when you buy into the QAnon it, it becomes your tribe it's awfully hard to get people to you know kind of break up with their tribe or believe things that exist out of their tribe so it's that combination of yeah hey, I don't know but everybody's saying it and if everybody's saying it maybe it is true after all and the fact that it's it becomes kind of imprinted as part of your tribal identity to believe this stuff so it just builds this like self-reinforcing 
cultural ecosystem that you can't break out of. I mean, it is your reality. Your reality becomes defined by everything you're hearing and the people surround you and they're all amplifying it and they're all recirculating these ideas. So it doesn't even require any kind of intellectual you know, digging or, or understanding. You just embrace it because it's who you are. It's who your people are. And there is no theory because it's culture. It becomes your culture. So, you know, just like you don't have to explain why, you know, you love Jesus or, um, you know, why you belong to this church instead of that church. It's who you are. And conspiracy has reached that level in our culture. It's become a tribal identifying it's it's who you are you can't any less not embrace that kind of conspiracy then you cannot be you know a southern baptist or a catholic or or you know whatever whatever you were brought up as it's it's become who you are combating you know this this idea of of magic as resistance and um and combating fashion combating nazism <laughs> with magic and and just sort of how that sort of started and and uh and your thoughts on that you know i mean yeah well um i, I mean i was deep I, I i bought the rebirth of pan in a uh, a new age bookstore back in the late 80s you know i mean i i had no idea the background of, of a lot of this stuff you know i've always been kind of you know not, a left-leaning, you know, pretty progressive guy. I mean, that's, you know, that's just the way I grew up. My dad was a union man, you know, when he was on strike, we had, you know, my mom had to stretch the pennies so we could, we could eat, you know, no steak for a couple of months, you know, and, uh, you know, cheap hamburger or whatever, hot dogs, stuff like that. So, you know, I, I just kind of grew up as a, you know, pretty left of center kind of guy. And, and I've always, been that way but um you know i got deep into conspiracies and uh you know of course you know back in the 70s 80s for the most part you know conspiracy was was like kennedy assassination and stuff like that and you know mk ultra and basically you know the excesses of the of the cia you know i mean there's always been like the john birchers and stuff like that you know who are pushing anti-semitic and really right-wing conspiracies but for the most part like culturally like the icon of conspiracism was the jfk researcher but then you know things started turning weird um in particular like it was always there you know like i'd go to these kind of ufo clubs and things and it'd always be a guy talking about the federal reserve and the gold standard you know and uh you know but then then we got you know we saw like david koresh and all that stuff and kind of overreaction during the the clinton administration just the right wingers like the you know the really rabid right wingers really came to prominence in the conspiracy community you had like you know bill cooper um you know that his his stuff started taking off the idea that you know hey thanksgiving's coming that's when the government's going to come round us all up because we'll all be watching football and fat and stuff full of turkey you know and and things like that and it just became you know especially under Clinton, you know, people were just like foaming at the mouth about posse comitatus and all this shit. 
And, you know, I started to see this turning in the conspiracy world to, towards, you know, this this sort of rabid anti, you know, new world order thing. And, then, you know, like you said earlier, you know, it was always the Jews, you know, <laughs> it's always the Jews behind everything. And they might not say it, but that's, you know, even today, uh, you know, the, the whole global, you know, when people toss around the word globalist and stuff and you're like, OK, just just say the Jews. OK, I mean, just just come out and say Jews. Don't say globalist. Just be upfront about your, you know, your Nazism. But, I, you know, I've just watched this over the years in the conspiracy realm. But then it's in the, you know, in the occult Fortean sort of realm. It's that stuff started really, you know, it's always been there. Like I said, there's it was always kind of below the surface among a lot of people. Um, but it really started like coming to the forefront in a way that I had never seen before. And in this synchromysticism community that you're talking about, like I watched, I won't really name names or anything, but I watched some people who had, you know, substantial presence online, blogs and stuff like that. Just really, you know, like going from kind of, you know, very sort of liberal, touchy-feely, hey, let's explore synchromysticism, just just getting sucked into this like dark political black holes, you know, and with, you know, with like Newtown Truth, you know, they they started sounding more and more like Alex Jones all the time. It was really disturbing to me and it, it like fractured a lot of friendships. It broke up a lot of online communities. One community in particular, I really liked real, you know, kind of heady, interesting, synchromistic stuff. It just degenerated into this like cesspool of, you know, where the, the big topic was like the Las Vegas shooter and how that was a psyop and, and, all, and all this stuff. And, it, you know, these communities with interesting esoteric discussions and ideas just suddenly that's the kind of crap they were talking about and it really started to to freak me out you know because i'm the whole sort of conspirituality concept that you know all these sort of esoteric or you know kind of alternative spiritual communities are just getting sucked into these dark places and then of course covid hits and and like you know and donald trump hits and everything just goes to shit in a in a flaming sailboat you know i mean just watching the disintegration of communities alternative thinkers alternative communities just disintegrating into these cesspools of like rabid conspiracism it was terrifying i mean there's um you know a, a lot of people i used to admire writers and things like that just suddenly started putting out you know the most atrocious you know, anti-science, anti-vaccine, you know, they started talking like Alex Jones and, and, you know, making Alex Jones seem kind of tame. It alarmed me to see so many people I knew, so many people I respected just completely shitting the bed and, you know, destroying their reputations. But they were they were finding community. And then January 6th hits and there's, you know, these knuckleheads, you know, high on Trump, cracking cop heads and busting into the busting into the Capitol and rubbing their shit all over the walls and carrying Confederate flags and stuff. And I'm like, what is going on here? Like, how did this happen, man? You know, how did how did grandmothers in fucking Peoria, how are they, you know, sniffing QAnon fumes, you know, and, and, and getting high on this stuff and, and going to school boards and and a third of the population is you know, believe stuff that, you know, makes the kind of shit 
I used to believe in my craziest conspiracy days look really tame. I mean, they're out waiting for, for you know, JFK Jr. to cut. They're out there tonight in Dealey Plaza waiting for JFK Jr. to come back and, you know, put his arm around Trump and then start killing all the liberals on primetime TV. It, it just boggles, boggles my mind that, you know, conspiracy, which used to be this kind of weird little niche culture has just been, you know, used in a way that it's manipulated so many people, so many communities that I've been part of that I never would have fallen into this stuff, like the psychedelic community. I mean, you know, it's like you go into a psychedelic group now and it's like 20 QAnon shaman guys, you know, talking about DMT and uh, and QAnon and, and Trump. And, sh and, you know, it's just all of my crazy subculture communities have been affected with this stuff and it's terrifying Ford Fest was where I realized like Fortiana had gone off the fucking rails man um, because I, w I was well I was being followed by what, the chemtrail guy and he, he wouldn't leave me alone he kept showing me pictures from him man who is chemtrail man I'm like it's not a chemtrail Oh, it's contrail, man. Like, I grew up near an airport. How is that a con? No, no, you could tell, man. You could tell that. And he wouldn't leave me alone. So I tried to ditch him. And I started talking to the photographer, the videographer for the thing. Kind of a hippie guy and the, like, natural healing and all that shit. You know, so we're chatting about stuff. And, and he starts talking about Newtown uh, being, like, a psyop. And no kids really died and all this stuff. And, like, I felt my my blood just running cold because I have a connection to Newtown. I have a friend who was a grief counselor for those parents. She knew some of those parents because her kids had gone to Sandy Hook Elementary. So she knew so many people in that community. As a matter of fact, when I first heard about that shooting, I remember like I had like CNN on my um, browser and I pulled it up and there I, I saw my friend in that picture like running, you know, with, with another parent or something like that. I was like, holy shit, I think that's Mary, you know? Yeah, it was, and it turned out to be her. So, so this knucklehead, you know, is just looking me in the eye and saying, no, no, no. And I'm like, dude, no, I, I know this, I know people that, that that lost their children he's like nah nah that's not true and i, I mean I, I wanted to strangle the guy you know I, i'm like a mellow you know non-violent person but to have this asshole like in my face telling me that you know those ch children didn't die up there uh, you know I, I mean and i'm like what has happened you know Fort Fest used to be about, you know, Bigfoot and UFOs and ghosts and, and all this stuff. And now it's being infected with this, this like toxic, you know, mind virus stuff. And, and, and that's also the same Fort Fest where, where I was the only person in the room who believed in climate change. You know, I was in a room after party, drinking, having a great time. And, and everybody was shouting me down about how, how, how stupid I was because I didn't, you know, because I bought the, the, you know, the, the climate hoax. And I'm like, what am I doing? Man, like, what am I doing in this community? Like, it's, it's, it's gone off, it's gone completely off the rails. Like, this, this is the kind of stuff that people believe. Like, they're, they're, they're absolutely and utterly like brainwashed and they've been pulled into these, this, 
They've been pulled into conspiracy. It wasn't always about conspiracy. You know, you, conspiracy was kind of a subset of Fortiana, but it just, and, and why, you know, that, that's, that's, that's what I've been trying to figure out. Like we're gullible. I'm sorry, but people who believe in ancient astronauts and shit like that, and I count myself, you know, among people who, you know, I love Derek Von Daniken and all that stuff. We're gullible, you know. We like mystery, like we get turned on by the mystery, so we're easy to fool, and people take advantage of that, you know. Some, some, sometimes intentionally. Have we been played? You know, like it's always been there under the surface. There have always been those people in these communities who are like, you know, really hardcore right wingers. And that's always kind of festering there. But now it's like it, it dominates a, a lot of the a, a lot of the conversations and a lot of the community. And was it intention? Is it intentionally done? Is it just a natural outgrowth of people who, you know, were skeptical? We, we know that we've been lied to about certain things by the government about UFOs, you know, yada, yada. So, so we're inherently skeptical. Has that gullibility been manipulated and used against us? I absolutely believe it has. I mean, you know, and you've seen it, I've seen it, we've, we've watched it just sort of take over. So yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's our gullibility, it's our natural distrust, it's our being on the fringe, it's our having been lied to for so long that we inherently distrust authorities. All of this stuff makes us like fertile targets for weaponized fascist propaganda. I just don't know what I think about it all. Uh, I don't either. It's like, it's a weird, I mean, it's like all the stuff I used to find like interesting and intriguing about the paranormal and, you know, synchronicity and coincidences and pattern seeking and, and all that stuff just, it's just mixed with like the, the nastiest, most wretched banal politics you know that that's like i mean that's what blows my mind you know that people you know it used to be people into synchronicity and mysticism and you know finding historical patterns and you know but it goes i mean it goes back to like king kill and and all that stuff you know it's just it's the pattern seeking but but it's it's grafted with just fascism that's that's what that's what's the most terrifying thing, you know, because there is there is a draw to I mean, that's that's what that's what compels conspiracists, you know, like finding the pattern, you know, finding the connection, the you know, the stupid like corkboard with the, you know, the push pins and shit, you know, and all the pictures and diagrams on the wall and all that stuff like that's that's the endorphin rush. I mean, I, I was one of those people. I used to feel that, you know, I would look, I would scour for those connections. And then when you find that connection, it's like, it's like, you know, doing a hit of cocaine or something, man. It's just like, you know, boom, like your synapses fire. And, and you're just like, I did it, man. I found another connection. And then you go on your, you know, your bulletin board or your Facebook or whatever um, and, and share it out. People are like, yeah, man, that's great. So you get like the affirmation for finding it too. And I, so I get it. You know, I was there. I've, I've done this. I've been, I've been in that stuff. I, you know, I was mainlining th- those connections and, and, and getting off on it. And and sharing it and getting off on like knowing you're part of that club that's that's 
finding all that stuff, and I totally get it. But to see it become so weaponized so quickly and so rapidly and to spread so so virally this stuff and, and it is just what what still blows my mind. Like you know the fact that just you know Granny and 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 Edith and, you know are now like caught up in this shit and it's tearing families apart and it's and it's it is breaking the whole you know it's breaking our political system down but again this stuff is that this has happened before you know that that's that's just the the most depressing thing about watching this all happen is it's happened before it's you know there's nothing new about fascism there's nothing new about you know political violence and demonization of people you know the, the, the there's nothing new about the far right and the way they they you know manipulate people's hatred and prejudice and things like that it's 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 old it's it's we've seen it again and again through history but to see it happening again and to see the conspiracism as like kind of the spear point of it and the the, just just the way it spread so efficiently and effectively the the vector of of social media you know especially facebook in particular the way it's just it's perfectly made to spread this kind of stuff it rewards this kind of thinking and this kind of behavior and it, and it enriches it you know it just builds it up that's what terrifies me fascism's not new but it's not just you know handbills being passed out on the street anymore it's like in your phone you know it's it's in your consciousness all the time and if you get sucked into the that algorithm man you know like good luck getting out you know, it takes some serious ass deprogramming to, to to break your head out of that toxic space because it's it, you, you're getting those endorphin hits and you're getting the adulation of your peers and your community. And it's just like this self-reinforcing system. You know, that that's what terrifies me the most is how easy it is for conspiracism and, and fascist um, conspiracism in particular to spread. You know, we've we've all seen it. We 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 all know someone who's gotten sucked into this stuff. And and man, what uh, what you're talking about too, in in terms of looking for connections, right? You know, I mean, that's what we that's what we do. I mean, it really yeah. is. It's really true. It. It's yeah. it's such a fucking high, right? It's yeah. such a fucking yeah. high. But think about the fact that that process, in and of itself is the essence of social media in the sense that these algorithms are constantly looking for connections between people and patterns. Like the whole system is built around making pattern recognition more efficient and then it's magnifying people to become more efficient at looking for patterns. But a computer has a whole data set to try to get rid of false patterns, right? Right. And, and we don't have those filters built exactly. in. Exactly. It's it's custom designed to to reward that that the the behavior that has resulted in where we are today. I mean, it's you couldn't design a better disinformation system if you tried than giving people these little communication devices in their pocket and rewarding antagonism and rewarding like exploitation and sensationalism and and that's what these systems do and that's what the algorithm does
In regard to the revised history of the historical narrative of the U.S., the historian David Williams stated, These and other scholarly voices called for a more comprehensive treatment of American history, stressing that the mass of Americans, not simply the power elites, made history. Yet, it was mainly white males of the power elite who had the means to attend college, become professional historians, and shape a view of history that served their own class, race, and gender interests at the expense of those not so fortunate, and quite literally, to paper over aspects of history they found uncomfortable. One is astonished in the study of history, wrote W.E.B. Dubois in 1935, at the recurrence of the idea that evil must be forgotten, distorted, skimmed over. The difficulty, of course, with this philosophy is that history loses its value as an incentive and as an example. It paints perfect men and noble nations, but it does not tell the truth. Revisionist historians don't accept the traditional or commonly held belief about a particular historical event, and it is often the case that the revisionist historian's perspective is from the minority, such as feminist historians, ethnic minority historians, and the oppressed. It's ironic that right-wing extremists and fascists also engage in historical revisionism, one of the most prominent being the Institute for Historical Review, or IHR. The IHR is a nonprofit which describes itself as a historical revisionist organization, though many scholars believe it to be central to the international Holocaust denial movement because of its promotion of anti-Semitic views and because it has substantial links to several neo-Nazi and fascist organizations. The IHR was founded in 1978 by David McAlden and Willis Carto, who also used his Noontide Press to publish books and printed material in support of their Holocaust revisionism, including William Grimstead's Anti-Zion and The Six Million Reconsidered. Historian Deborah Lipstadt, author of Denying the Holocaust, The Growing Assault on Truth and Memory, and Michael Shermer and Alex Gropen, authors of Denying History, who says the Holocaust never happened, and why do they say it? Make a distinction between historical revisionism and historical negationism, the latter of which they describe as a form of denialism. Lipstadt says that Holocaust deniers disingenuously self-identify as historical revisionists as a way to hide their true status as a denier of historical fact. Lipstadt, Shermer, and Grobman all agree that legitimate historical revisionism involves challenging the existing information about a historical event, not denying that the event happened. Legitimate historical revisionism, they point out, acknowledges the existence of a certain body of irrefutable evidence and the existence of a convergence of evidence, which suggests that an event, such as the Black Death, American slavery, or the Holocaust, did occur. Denialism of history simply rejects the entire foundation of historical evidence and fact. Obviously, if the majority or those in power choose denialism or negationism of a particular event, there's a more significant impact on the historical record, and no doubt this has occurred in our nation and others to maintain the status quo. If you look at what's happening in the war in Ukraine, Russia is attempting to use disinformation and denialism to revise the historical record of their actions. And this has happened on a smaller scale in the paranormal and conspiracy communities, and in particular the UFO community, where disinformation is rampant. I think it's important that we actively call out and resist attempts by fascists and other maligned actors and agents 
who attempt to revise the historical record for their own devices. And the real question in such situations is what is their ultimate goal? Sir Phil Stevenson and I have had many, many discussions about fascism and synchromysticism and how right-wing extremist groups might use magical rituals for nefarious purposes. I've had to really take a look at all the stuff and, and, you know, realize where it really comes from. I think, I mean, I'm kind of like, that's what I, I want to tell part of that story in the second season, right? But um, because I do want to, I, you know, obviously, you know, I fucking love synchromysticism. And I love mm-hmm. the downward mythos, you know, and it's like, then you find out all this stuff and it's like, fuck, what a great story that they've, uh, used as a vehicle, you know, it's like, fuck yeah, a guy's driving across America with a Colt 45 on his hip and he's got an airstream and he's finding all these threads of mysticism, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. this is fucking cool, you know, but it's like, that's the, that's the way they get you, you know, it's like, yeah, it's cool, right? Drink this Kool-Aid, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and it only works because of it's not on the surface blatantly anti-Semitic. Yeah, yeah. But it, but, it, it gets you into that that world when you start thinking that the world's run by a bunch of sorcerers. Well, then who's the sorcerers? And all it all you know will end up in that. By God, in the real world, is some of this shit going on? You know, and well, it puts you in that magical decompressed state. And a lot of people, you know, if like if you have the background of already doing that, then you like recognize if you start reading some downward, it's like you feel like you're playing D D or like doing rituals or something, you know, it's the same kind of feeling. Uh, it's divinatory, oracular, you know, you're getting into that headspace. But a lot of people like they're not really self-conscious that they're doing that and they're like addicted to consuming shit like this because it gives them this altered state but they don't really know that's that's what they're seeking they're not really seeking the truth they want to feel a certain way and we all need that decompression we all need that magical thinking you know i just think the spell has to be broken you know because it but there is a lot of great insight into more occulted parts of american history you know that people like richard spence really have appreciated and pointed out that's in all the downer mythos and it changed changed the way i i've thought you know and it really influenced me as a young person and and uh, how i look at the city how i look at any place i go to you know and because the the masonic sorcerers really did build this country and it's like it's led me to finding people who were masonic sorcerers of the past who've become like my heroes it's not always nefarious evil doers trying to assassinate children and blah blah like it's rarely that you know a lot of times you find really great interesting people behind this stuff you know with all the weird shit that's happened it's like why are why is it so intimately linked to these motherfuckers because they're anti-materialists and you know a lot of the hard right for a long time has said that you know well the left is based on science and Marxism is based on science. It has pretensions of that. And, you know, they're trying to save spiritual man from this evil science that's just going to, you know, destroy us all. The science isn't really what it seems to be also because it's also sorcery. So the way that, like, Grimstead talks about, like, quantum physics, the way that he's, like, 
oh, it's a bunch of bullshit, blah, blah. It's obviously because they probably think it's a Jewish science. They think what it is really going on is that this sorcery is what rules the world. And I don't know how they they intend to to think they're fighting back or whatever, but it's it's all tied up in that kind of neo-traditionalist, anti-science, anti-materialist, anti-modern world shit. I mean, it gets into uh, fucking Evola. You know, yeah. it all goes back to to fucking Italian magicians. But Fortiana is seen as the thing that can pick at the armor of materialism because it's the anomalous things that don't make sense. So it's 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 can be their weapon. I think they see it as that. But I think I really want to know if you know. Did they these guys start out as Fortians or did they get into it as a means or what? You know, I mean, I, th- I mean, Brandon is really sophisticated and he's he's, you know, Rebirth of Pan and Weird America are like, you know, great libraries of just like cataloged anomalous shit. And they both wrote for Fortean Times. I mean, I, you know, I don't know the chicken or the egg, but obviously, you know, I think they see it as as something that's in their their deck, you know, to use. I wonder what Forty and Times thinks about this. You know what I mean? Like, in terms I tried of- to look into them a little bit, but I didn't look into them too much. But, like, they might have some some pretty extreme right connections. I mean, John Michelle definitely is, you know, he's like the father of the Earth Mystery stuff, and he's he would consider himself a radical traditionalist, you know, pretty much the same as these guys. You know, he admired Hitler and uh, but I didn't know that either until I started. I was actually researching the Leyline stuff, right? Through that, you know, and it kind of mm-hmm. led back to him. And then when I started reading about him, then found out that he was this traditionalist and was like, major fucking right wing. I'm like, well, here's another 40 and founder who is fucking, is a fascist. I was looking for ties to the, the Northern League, which is like a Nordicist fascist right wing thing that the FBI was tying Cardo money to. So that was like a UK, Denmark, a few countries, but there might be something in that. So that the Northern League might have some some kind of connection to all that. I was trying to find some kind of connection between the Northern League and some of these bigger 14 organizations in the UK, but couldn't really find anything. But I mean who knows how much of this stuff is just tangential, you know? Yeah. But some of it's definitely connected, though, for sure. You know, like, that's that's the fucking freaky thing. Are there members of the extreme right, or fascist magicians, or esoteric Nazis, or even synchro mystics, that are making a concerted effort to alter reality? Have they discovered a way to use magic to revise history. If you believe that magic has an effect on reality, then it's a terrifying prospect to consider that certain individuals or groups are attempting to re-engineer reality through their magical workings and rituals. The Bait Cabal in Cincinnati in the 1970s were studying time magic, and though they would not have been involved in something of this sort, it's not outside the realm of possibility that other more nefarious magical practitioners might use similar rituals to target specific historical events with time magic. 
The thing that's more frightening to me is that they've found a way not to alter timelines or rearrange events, but a way to shift what Jung would refer to as the collective unconscious of the world. Latter-day Evolas may have discovered a way to use synchromysticism to target specific events and attempt to alter the historical record through magical means. I've often pondered whether certain traumatic global events, events that are historical hinges, like the JFK assassination or 9-11, could produce singularities of a sort, fracturing time and space because of the gravity of the event. The Global Consciousness Project, which began at Princeton University in 1988, maintains a network of hardware called Random Event Generators, or electrogiograms, nicknamed Princeton Eggs, at 70 locations all around the globe. Every second, they electronically flip 200 coins and track the results to record changes in randomness. The Global Consciousness Project claims that randomness unexplainably decreased four hours before the terrorist attacks on 9-11 at the exact time the planes hit the towers and fluctuated for the following two days before randomness returned to normal levels. Did our global collective consciousness and traumatic emanations cause fluctuations in the global randomness? Did things become more predictable during that event? Did people during those moments of reduced randomness experience more synchronicities in their lives globally? The Global Consciousness Project has also reported that during the Indian Ocean tsunami, global randomness began to fluctuate and decrease 24 hours before the storm hit. And these Princeton eggs also recorded similar fluctuations and decreases in randomness prior to the bombing of the American Embassy in Africa in August 1998, as well as Princess Diana's death and her funeral and many more events. Could these events that cause a decrease in global randomness be targeted by magicians? Prior to the Princeton eggs, were fascist synchro mystics using Downard's methodologies to track and target specific events that might allow them to revise history magically. And even if you don't believe in magic and deny that it has any power to shape reality, you have to consider that quantum information theory is a real thing. We know now that information can pass from this dimension into other imperceptible dimensions and back again. We're constructing quantum computers that use spooky action at a distance to communicate in impossible ways. The observer's ability to affect the system being observed is built into the framework of these devices. We can even send information in the form of quantum bits or qubits back through time into the past. So even if you don't believe in magic, it's very likely that you'll have to acknowledge that through the magic of science and specifically quantum mechanics and quantum information theory, we can send information through time and possibly encode information that could affect a specific moment in history, causing it to change in ever so small a way that it ripples out across the decades and produces an imperceptible shift. We wouldn't even know that anything had changed. We couldn't know and couldn't detect it because all we know is the sequence of events that the shift produced. Our original timeline would forever be altered, unknown to us. This is all pure speculation, but it's something that I believe is worth at least thinking about, because even if it isn't true in an esoteric or even fantastical sense, it is a reality that real people 
right now are using social media, data mining, and AI to change your thinking and your behavior. They're trying to revise history in real time by algorithmically influencing your beliefs and targeting parts of your personal folklore. You're constantly engaging with content designed to shift your paradigm, even if it's just an innocent attempt to get you to change what shampoo you buy. It really blew my mind to... to, to and it, this is my own naivety, because there, there's, there's two things for this for me with kind of fascism in, in occult circles. A, beyond anything else, it's a shit ideology. You know, we only have to look to the last century and the barbarism that was inflicted on the on the Jewish people. You know, and just the horror of it. It's it, you know, it's a terrible, terrible ideology. We have proven that. So for me, it's it's staggering that anybody would even kind of entertain it. You know, as a potential. The second bit for me is that I've always perceived, and again, this is my own naivety, and and I'm constantly astonished to find out this. I'm this isn't the case. But for me, kind of the the occult and that area of exploration has always been one of breaking through kind of convention and and restriction, which is exactly what I see fascism as. You know, uh, as kind of like you're not an individual with individual expression. You're a cog in this machine. So I I find it very hard to to think of how people can align the two and see them as. Uh, as good bedfellows to me they're they're polar opposites but it does exist and i'm staggered each time by it horrified really you know it's 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 shocking but you are right about the uh what about what what david southwell is saying is it's owning the narrative of place and owning the narrative to to build the idea of nation of nation state and fundamentally inform and own identity when you, when you, as I said, when you, when you extrapolate some of these ideas that we talk about, so I've, I've defined them as restricting, you know, and I, I think about them in terms of like, that's why I thought it was Kronos when you said it was, it was like, it's a Saturnian thing, right, of like authority, patriarchy, and those kind of, uh, of manifestations of, of, of kind of Saturnian energy. How do you defeat that? You know, how, how do you rail against that? And it's like, I, I don't ever really think that going steaming in, uh, and going straight for the juggler it is always the best strategy. That's not to say it doesn't have its time, its place, but it's not always about that, right? It, it, it's it's how do you how do you create the conditions in the community that that just can't take root? You know, and, and I, I go back to kind of the stewardship motif in that, like being in community in a community that's giving and a community that is kind and caring. You know, that actually can give a sense of place and a sense of community and a sense of family that doesn't go down the route of othering, which these things tend to do. And it's like, you know, you're with us because they're the others and those others have X characteristic and we hate them for it. Or they're they're attacking us and, you know, and start to kind of build a narrative in that way. That's that's one of conflict, you know, and it's like it doesn't have to be that you don't have to subscribe to that, you know. Um, and I And I think it's how do you... How, how, how do we, I say, I say the, the royal you, right? How do we as individuals, you know, not not give in to that mentality, you know, and, and don't allow it to take root? And for, for me, that's down to, again, it's, it's that sense of, of stewardship, you know, and stewardship is, is, it's different from 
the patriarchal role. It's a different form of of nourishment. That's it. It gives nourishment to the community. It doesn't necessarily restrict or order or, or, or demand an extraction from the community. It nourishes it in a different way. Open a radical anarchist animist bookshop across the street that offers great student discounts or amazing coffee, you know, totally undermine them that way. It's like, like it, it, it's that that's how I would do it. I, you know, I, like or that, do it to art. You know, that's that that's how all this stuff was 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 taken down. You know, the Tory government in the 80s in the UK was, you know, attacked so many communities and essentially it was left-wing fringe comedy that swung the nation you know over a period of, of 10 years maybe a bit more but that's that's where it was that's where all the protest was it was in comedy it was in art and that was extraordinarily effective we didn't expect to keep running into nazis and fascists over and over while investigating the penny royal mystery but they were there waiting to be found in fact they weren't trying to hide at all Chasing down this mystery and trying to understand what was happening in Pulaski County and on the Penny Royal, and in Kentucky and even in the U.S., forced us to look at some rather unsavory characters that have had an effect on all of our lives and, honestly, world history. We discovered strands of Nazism and fascism spiraling out from the Penny Royal, and it wasn't limited to the Penny Royal. There were strands of fascism everywhere, like cobwebs in a haunted house. The strands of fascism have made it into our offline and online communities. As Michael Hughes pointed out, there's been a significant shift in the paranormal, conspiracy, and UFO communities in the last few years. What may have begun in the 1970s and 80s, the fringe right-wing extremism that Adam Parfrey flirted with and promoted, has gone mainstream through groups like QAnon and spread like wildfire on platforms like 4chan, pushed relentlessly by news media. Fascism terrifies me. The psychology of fascism terrifies me. The violence of fascism terrifies me. The denial of reason that fascism harbors at its core terrifies me. If there's anything real to the concepts of tulpas and egregores, even a little bit, and the egregore of fascism exists as an entity projected by the collective human consciousness, even thinking that could be true terrifies me. But the pendulum has to swing in the other direction, and I believe it's already started. We've hit a high watermark in technology, experiencing the growing pains that all prior societies have felt when they advance to a new technological level. And just as this technology appears to verge on magic, magic seems to be returning to the world. As Dara Mason said, the mystery is returning. There are many of us in our communities who are actively trying to re-enchant the world. We're working on projects, creating content, engaging the racism and misogyny that have been going on too long, and fighting against the encroachment of the spell of fascism that's been biding its time. We have to actively engage in re-enchantment, and we have to follow David Southwell's lead and embrace re-enchantment as resistance. Penny Royal is written and produced by your host, Nathan Paul Isaac. Associate producers are Darian West and Kyle Cadell. 
Original musical score by Philip Clonch. Edited and mixed by Boone Williams. Sponsored by Jarfly Brewing Company and the International Paranormal Museum and Research Center. If you're interested in joining the investigation and diving deeper into the story, visit pennyroyalpodcast.com and support the show by becoming a member of the Liminal Lodge. Thanks for listening and keep digging.